Okay, stand up, please. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Glory to Thee, O God, glory to Thee, Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O Good One. There's talk about nuclear war. As you know, those who listen to the news, America with North Korea, so there's all this fear about nuclear war. And they say that the North Koreans have the ability to hit the west coast of America, but also the north part of Australia. And as time goes on, they say that they might get the ability to even hit Sydney. So with all that in mind, we are on the brink, they say, of nuclear war. There's fear of it. And it takes one mistake. Someone presses the wrong button. Someone gets offended. Could be a big war. And yet, today, I'm continuing the talks on the upbringing of children. Why would I do that if we're going to die soon? Now, this problem also uh, existed in the first century of the church where a lot of the Christians in those times thought that Christ was going to return to earth quickly. But I think, I don't know when it was, in the first century, around, maybe a bit after. And some people thought, why get married? Why have children? Why make money? Why have businesses when we're going to... Christ is going to come soon. And if you look at the history, there was always times when people thought there was going to be the end of the world or that the Antichrist is going to come. Like today, people believe that the Antichrist is going to come and they live in fear, excessive fear, and they don't function properly. Now... When Arius started preaching the heresy that Christ wasn't God in the early 4th century, a lot of Christians, including saints, would say, he's the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist which has been prophesied in the Bible. And that didn't happen, because as we know, when the Antichrist comes, he's going to reign for seven years, the first three and a half good, the next three and a half bad, and then the end of the world will come. And um, the world's still here 1,700 years later. So he wasn't the Antichrist. Then when the Pope decided to be the head of the church and the churches split, they fell away from the true church, the Orthodox Church, people, including saints, thought that the Pope was the Antichrist. But that was a thousand years ago, so he couldn't have been the Antichrist. And again, people were worried and you know, started thinking this is the end, that's the end, Christ is going to come again and all that. And then the old believers in Russia believed that the Russian church, the official Russian church, was something to do with the Antichrist as well and they thought that the end of the world was going to come because 
the Russian church changed some of the liturgical books and they changed doing their cross from two fingers. I think they used to do it like this. Then they changed it to three fingers and they didn't like that. So when that happened, that change, they believed that the end of the world was coming as well. And some of them, with their families, would jump off cliffs so as not to join the Russian church. Uh, they had their own church called the Old Believers Church. And um, some of them, some men, I think, even buried their own children and fanaticism and craziness. Anyway, as time went on, then they thought Napoleon was the Antichrist. Then they thought Stalin was the Antichrist. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler. At one stage, they even thought that George Bush was the Antichrist. But the world's still here. The Antichrist didn't come. And our Holy Fathers tell us not to worry about when the end of the world's going to come. We don't know that. They said, no one thing. One thing, you, this is going to happen for sure in your lifetime. You're going to die. One day, we're all going to die, and that's the end of the world for us. And when you get too much focused on the end of the world and Antichrist, you lose your spiritual life. A lot of those people who are into that, a lot of them are mentally ill, but apart from that, they lose themselves. There are books written on the Antichrist. I think we've got maybe some at the back. But when I first came to the church, I came to the church in 1983. And I read a lot of those things too. Your people in the beginning, they always read that stuff. So I was into that a bit too, looking at it. And they said that the Antichrist was going to come in 1994, something like that, 20 years ago. That didn't happen. And once I saw that, and plus I spoke to a few holy people, and they said, no, don't do that. And then I realised that it's a trick. It's a trick of the devil to make people not look at their salvation, but look at all these things. So we are allowed to worry there might be a nuclear war. Remember that the church prays for peace in the world, etc. We have monks and nuns all over the world, Russia, Serbia, America now. Uh, here are all monasteries especially that pray for the world. If it wasn't for the monasteries, the world would be hell. So the monasteries are praying continue, but every liturgy also, um, there's prayers. And you, as Orthodox Christians, have the duty to pray for the peace of the world. When you do your prayers, part of your prayers should be grant peace to the world. And as you heard today during the Paraclesis that I just did now, the Malibin, uh, there was one point at there at the end which says, and protect us from famine, earthquake, flood, foreign invasion, foreign invasion, all those things. So we can't stop now because North Korea, the man there, the head, is having a fight with the President of the United States, Trump, and there could be a war. We can't stop living. We can't stop going to work. You can't stop bringing up your children. You continue on at the same time you pray. That's it. 
you want to read a little bit about it, you can, but unfortunately most people, they're not very spiritual, and when they read these things, their minds go a bit haywire. It's not compulsory. The church fathers didn't say that you have to read about these things. But the ones that have read a lot about them, I can tell when I speak to them, when I meet them, or when they ring, I can always tell the way they speak, whether they've brainwashed themselves into this topic about the Antichrist and the end of the world and the 666 and the barcodes and whatever, all that type of things. Now, Elder Paisius spoke about that as well. Now, some say, some say, he spoke too much. Now, Elder Porfirios didn't. Some fathers did, some fathers didn't, some fathers a little bit, some fathers more. But one thing to know, it's not part of the church's dogma or anything like that that you have to bury yourself in knowledge about that type of business. Your business is to prepare, and my business, is to prepare for our death. If you're married, your business is to prepare your children, to, to bring them to the church, to make them spiritual, so they can be saved, so you can be saved as well. That's our thing. That's why I'm not going to stop living, and I don't want you to stop living. We're going to do this talk. There might be a nuclear war. They might not be. It doesn't matter. Now, when we die, could be tomorrow, could be in one week, two weeks, one year, five years, ten years, fifty years. When we die, God's not going to ask us, why didn't you do anything to stop nuclear war or why didn't you find out more about the Antichrist and all these things? No. He's going to ask us on the Day of Judgment, what did you do for your soul? Now, Archbishop of Verki of the Monastery of Jordanville, who died, I think, in the 70s, very, very holy man, he wrote a lot about those topics, but in, in a sober way. See, someone can drink wine and still walk a straight line. Other people can drink wine, drink too much, whatever, and they go all over the place. So he did speak about Antichrist, but in a sober way, a proper way, a straight way. In a, in a discerning way. While others, when they talk about it, you feel like your, your brains are going to explode because there's something demonic about the way they're speaking. So Archbishop Averki said, apostasy, when people fall away from the church, is going to occur. That's going to happen. Don't try and stop it. Just take care of your soul, take care of your family, pray a little bit, things like that, but you can't stop the coming of the Antichrist. You can't stop apostasy. You can't stop these things. God can stop them. See, the Antichrist, maybe it was meant for him to be born in 1994, let's just say. But when the world turns to God more, more and more, then God can leave that not to happen. See, that's why you see a saint might prophesy and say, communism in Russia is going to come in 1850, some red beast or some prophecies like that. It didn't occur. Why? Because he was wrong. Maybe because the people were turning back to the church, so God left off. But when St. John of Kronstadt came, who died around 1912 or something around there, he said, 
about this red beast is going to come to Russia and people to repent. And God allowed, for the sake of the people, for him to do these miracles, miracles that were just abundant. No one ever seen something like that, public. Like some saints used to do miracles, but they used to do them, you know, here and there quietly. But he was doing miracles in the church everywhere he was going. And the reason for that is that God wanted to tell the Russian people, come back to orthodoxy, repent, stop sinning. And that's what St. John of Kronstein told them. But the Russians didn't listen. And a few years later, communism came. Now communism's gone. But why did communism go? Because people were repenting and returning to the church. What came first, communism dropping or people returning to the church? People returning to the church came first and then communism collapsed. There was already a revival happening in Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, all these countries. And if you notice, communism hit in all the Orthodox countries, not the Western countries as much. It was uh, Hungary a little bit, but their communism wasn't that. But Russia, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, all Orthodox countries. And as I said last time, or the one before, they were going for Greece. There was a civil war. After the Second World War, there's a civil war. It was the communists against those who were royal to the king, and a lot of people died. Families were divided, and they lost. And Greece did not become communist. Why? Because Greece was the most orthodox spiritual country. The monasteries, the elders, the eldresses, very strong, and they couldn't do it. So that's something for you to remember. It's going to continue on now with the talk on uh, the upbringing of children. Now, in the past talks, as you've noticed, I've spoken about parenting practices which at the end turned out to be abusive, traumatic, and had very bad effects on children. Some of you said, yes, that one's obvious, I can see that one's bad, but then there was a lot that you could say, no, I didn't know that, I didn't know that one was bad. Things that people just didn't realise. And I made a list of 20 things. And I got some feedback on that, 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 that people like that list. I'm not going to read the list again. It's in the previous talk, Talk 74. But what I will read is just some of them. We remember St. Porfirios, where he talks about trauma in the womb. He says, traumas are created in, in its little soul that stay with it all its life. The mother has to be very careful not to traumatise the child while the child's in the womb. That's why, for example, the church canons say that if a man was bad to his wife, not, not necessarily hit her, but was bad to her, rude, shouting, upsetting her, and she lost the baby... That man, it says, cannot become a priest because one of the conditions to become a priest is you mustn't have killed someone. 
So the church fathers considered a man that does that a murderer. So he said, Anil de Paisius and the saints say that these traumas can occur in the womb. The other one that I read was lack of love, lack of affection, lack of attention and lack of guidance. Those things we read cause weakness and unable to face the problems of life when people are not given love, affection, attention and guidance. That's abusive. Because if you make someone weak, that's like the way, that's like um, when you read the symptoms of uh, abuse, one of them is that, that the child becomes weak and dysfunctional. And by not giving a child love, attention, so it's abusive. Number three, excessive discipline, harsh reprimands. When people discipline their children too much, reprimand them harshly. And what, the, what did the saints say about that? Causes the child to be wounded and develop psychological problems. The other one, number four, is corporal punishment. That's physical. Physical. Now, as I said, the church is not fully against that. Uh, obviously, we've read in the past, I'm not going to go through it now. Sometimes you might smack a little, you know, when they're very young, they don't understand. But St. Patience said, once they start understanding, speak to them. You don't have to use physical. And you must, must avoid it. Elder Porfirios said, not at all. So St. Paisius said, yes, you can do it a little bit. When they're very young, they're going to touch the hot stove. You might, you know, smack them on the hand a bit or something like that. When they get older, then you use logic. Some people, they don't do that. So corporal punishment that's not proper can be abusive as well. Parents arguing and fighting. I did that in the first talk. I did that in the second talk. Talk 70, talk 71. I spoke a lot about that, and I forgot it in my list of 20 anyway. So children who witness their parents fighting, it says, uh, I think it was Elder Porfirios, the poor children are traumatised and therefore confused and saddened. Their lives are constructed poorly and the foundation of their soul is in constant danger of collapsing. Now, I was speaking to a young woman and um, she's very, you know, timid, anxious, scared a lot. And uh, she said to me that when she was young, her parents used to sometimes fight in the bedroom, door shut, but she could hear it. But their parents thought that she couldn't hear. And I said to her, how did that make you feel? She goes, horrible, used to make me sick, etc., etc. So that caused her to become confused and saddened now, these people, as they're growing up, their souls are not built on a rock. Their souls are like they're built like without foundations. They're weak. And in constant danger of collapsing means with the smallest things, like they're going to implode because like they just can't cope with much. Elder Bayusio said also to run and play when you don't let children run and play when they're young, that can be abusive too. He said, it's, 
He said that children need room to run and play in order to grow naturally and progress. They don't develop, and I read a lot of things about that in the previous talks that talk about that, the importance. Now, most parents prefer their children to study when they're really young. Then the children stay in front of the computer. Not much physical. Then they wonder why they're sick, physically and mentally. And the one that I did last, last time was overprotection and pressure in children. That was a big one. You know, the helicopter parents and things like that. And I did a, a whole talk mostly was on overprotection and pressure in children. I'm just going to read one part of what St. Porfirio says about that. Another thing that harms children is overprotectiveness. That is excessive care, excessive anxiety and excessive worry on the part of the parents. And I tell you, because the other day when I was doing the notes, I was talking to the person that was helping me type, and I said, oh, what was the overprotectiveness again? I couldn't remember those three words. And then she said, oh, whack, W-A-C, because that was the way I told you to remember. See, I told you how to remember it, but I forgot. So W for worry, A for anxiety, C for care. Now, when we said last time, oh, shouldn't the parents worry? And shouldn't the parents have anxiety and care? Yes. But what does St. Porfirio say? Excessive care, excessive anxiety and excessive worry. Where it goes to the point of becoming psychological, pathological and, and it damages the child. Then I read to you last time, and I'm going to read this again because it's going to relate to what we're going to talk to later. One where St. Porfirio says... Sometimes I say elder, elder base, I'm used to it because for many years they weren't canonised, so it's no disrespect because they lived in our times and we always knew them as elder porphyrios, elder bases, even though they're saints. It's no disrespect. That's what happens like St. Justin Popovich, the Serbians, a lot of them still call him elder and things like that because that's how they knew him because he lived close to our times. So St. Porphyrio says, mothers who are always standing over their children and pressurising them, that is, overprotecting them, have failed in their job as a mother. You need to leave the children alone to take an interest in its own progress. Then you will succeed. When you're always standing over them, the children react. Now that's important because Elder Porfirios and Elder Paisos talk about this reaction of children to this wrong parenting things that people do. And they call it a reaction. Now, some of you might think, oh, reaction means they get nervous and they might say, oh, leave me alone. That's one reaction. But that's not what they mean, just that. Reaction means a lot of things. And this part here, you need to leave the children alone, take an interest in its own progress. I gave an example of children that go to school. Okay, you try to help them and things like that. Even at early education, that's another... That's, that's abuse too, by the way. When you send children to school too early, that's abuse. Most countries uh, are seven and eight. But Australia, America, you know, because cheap daycare, you send them to school. And parents, you know, mothers say can't wait to send my child to school when she should be really saying I can't wait for my child to be sent to school to be abused so not abused necessarily by the teachers but 
those people who are running the education department are psychopaths, a lot of them. They're actually psychopaths. More and more, it's going lower and lower. The children have to learn. So four years old, four and a half, they have to learn how to write their names. And they can't even hold a pen. So the child's trying. It doesn't, doesn't have the, the motor skills. So that child then later on thinks it's dumb. It starts developing complexes. And some children intellectually, they haven't got it at that age. It's only a few, very small percentage might have it. They want them to learn to spell, to write. And I hear parents saying, my child's five, six years old, and he goes, it's got all this homework to do. Homework. And now in America as well, they're saying the children have to learn a lot before they go to school even, because that will help them at school. But America is 30th in the world for education. They spend the most money, as Trump reminds us all the time, they spend the most money and they are 30th in the world. They don't learn because the people that are running these educators, feminists and other crazy people, psychopaths. Blind psychopaths. Psychopaths bad, but when he's blind as well, then, you know, it can be even worse. And these people are blind psychopaths. Can't stop saying the word. 30th in the world. I don't know what we are, but we're probably low as well. And the best country is, which one? Do you remember? I've told you before. Finland. How old do they start? Seven. But for the first year, they just do structured play. No academic, no academics, structured play. What does structured mean? Do games, organise games. And then in eight, they start the academics. And they're the best. But the psychopaths, they can't work that out. They can't work it out. And they're 30th in the world. Oh, how embarrassing. And they spend the most money out of everyone. And there are people, teachers, who are coming out now and saying that early childhood education is bad, but they're being silenced by the feminists. Because it makes mothers feel guilty. See, the truth a lot of times is suppressed. So if you lived in communist countries like Russia, the KGB suppressed everything, they only gave the information they wanted. Well, I've said as well that we have KGB here as well. It's called WKGB, Western KGB. They also suppress the truth about a lot of topics, one of them being childcare, the damage that it does, early school, contraception pills, which will cause abortion and make women sick. Uh, abortion itself. They go, oh, it's a safe procedure, just come in, you can even go back to work. Yeah, but they don't talk about the depression, the suicide of these women later on. And the fact that many of their children that are born after they've had the abortion are born with abnormalities because of the abortion. There's a lot of things being hid. Anyway, we've discussed that before. And so let's see how children react when parents are overprotective, when they're pressurising them. They become lethargic. And I looked up lethargic for you. Lazy, apathetic, inactive. So he says they become lethargic and weak-willed. 
and generally are unsuccessful in life. This is a kind of overprotectiveness that leaves the children immature. So as I said before, children have to take an interest in their own progress. So, for example, they don't want to do, say they're older now, eight, nine, and they're not doing their maths or something like that, and then you tell them you've got to do your maths. They don't want to do it. So what are you going to do? Fight every night. What I would say, and what I've taught parents to do, and it works, by the way, you don't want to do it, that's your problem. You've got to have the consequences of going to school and getting punished, whatever happens there, which is still bad, but anyway, that's what happens. And you're doing it for you. So one child said to um, his mother, he goes, I did all my maths and it's the school holidays now and you said you're going to take me out. I did it for nothing. And the mother mentioned, this was a few years ago, and the mother mentioned to me and I said, no, 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 you tell the child, you're not doing the maths for me. You're doing the maths for your future. That's for your future. You want to do something? You want to go to TAFE or university? You've got to have maths. I mean, well, some, a lot of courses have maths or English or things. That's for your future. So you've got to put it back on the child to understand that what they're doing is for them. That means that's why the saint says, take an interest in its own progress, not forcing it. They've got to know why they're doing it. Let's pray now, children. Come and pray. They don't want to pray. Okay, that's your business. Let's leave them. Leave them. They don't want to pray. That's what even St. Paisra said that. Leave them. Actually, better off if they're not in the room because you can't concentrate. You do the prayer. Let them see you. Let them get jealous in a good way. And you tell them, I want you to come so that you can pray to God for your needs. Because they all the children have needs, they've got passions, you can tell them that. And also for their schoolwork or for their whatever, whatever they're doing. You know, there's a lot of things they can pray about as well. And also to ask God forgiveness. That's for you. Not for me, for you. So you put it back on them, but people don't do that. They just go, it's like they've got a whip and they go, come on, you have to pray. And there are parents who do that. So they're doing the prayer and they're doing holy God, holy mighty, and they're holding a stick. Holy God, holy mighty. When the kid does something, ksh, holy God, holy mighty. How do you do that? Then you wonder why that child hates religion. Or the other man once that I had um, an encounter where he used to bash his wife. And after he bashed his wife, then he would go and do prayers for the kids. Then he wonders why the kids left the church. Anyway, she finally left him. So that's what they mean by reactions. There are a lot of reactions, but St. Porfirio says lethargic, weak-willed. They haven't got a will. You, know, you see some children go, you've got nothing in you. You haven't got a will for anything. A lot of times it's because they've been either forced a lot or some type of abuse. So these symptoms that they're saying also are for parents that are fighting and other things that are traumatic. St. Paisios. Oh, yeah, another one. Listen to what he says uh, about an example. He says, his mother really loved him. This love, however, did not help him because of the way she treated him, which caused negative reactions on his part. Elder Porfirio said reactions, while Elder Paisio says negative reactions. 
Now, what was that mother doing, even though he says she, you know, she had love, but the way she treated him, which was a grown man, by the way, his mother was pressuring him on him all the time. And that caused him to have negative reactions. Many people find it hard to believe that overprotectiveness and pressuring are abusive because they're not hitting or they're not shouting or whatever. But Elder Paisos and Elder Porfirios describe the effects of overprotectiveness and pressuring in a similar way to how psychologists describe the symptoms and behaviours of children who have been exposed to trauma. And back in, I don't know, three or four talks ago, I actually did go through from the world of psychology what they say happens to children when they're traumatised. They are affected in three ways. Physiologically, that's the body. Psychologically, the mind. And behaviourally, their behaviour, obviously. I'm going to read them really quickly. We've done them before, but I just wanted to remind you to put us in the mood for the rest of the talk. Physiologically, this is what happens to children who are traumatised. Now, these are for children from naught to six, but we have to know that these things continue later on. The younger it happens to them, the more that they're going to be disturbed for the rest of their life. Now, they can develop a poor appetite, they can lose weight or have digestive problems, experience stomach aches and headaches, experience nightmares or sleep difficulties, wet the bed or self after being toilet trained, not before they're toilet trained, after they've been toilet trained and they start wetting the bed. Um, a racing heart or fast breathing, that comes from anxiety. Nausea, which is when they feel sick and feel like vomiting. That's just some of the physiological ones for the body. Let's go now psychologically, which is the cognitive, the um, thinking, reasoning and remembering, using the mind. Demonstrate poor verbal skills. They don't speak very well. Exhibit memory problems. And there's a lot of adults that I've dealt with. Every few sentences, I forgot. These kids were traumatised. Well, they're not kids now, they're adults. But when they were young, they were traumatised. And they continually say, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. It's continuing. Uh, exhibit memory problems, have difficulties focusing or learning in school. So they've either been traumatised from home, from the TV, from the childcare, or just going to school early. All these things can cause trauma so that later on they have difficulties learning. Now, I was traumatised when I went to school early. I went five. And I remember that it was traumatic. And I'm now 60, but I remember now recently, just recently, I started having some, like we say, memories of the past, but feelings. And I started having feelings in my stomach. And then I remembered that when I would go to school, my stomach would, I feel sick. And then later on, growing up, I developed all these stomach problems. And the trauma was that my mother took me there. I never even knew what, what's going on. So she took me there and we were sitting in the room with all these kids. Then my mother got up and started leaving. Then she went outside and then the door was shut. I was going berserk. And then um, I saw her face there on the, you know, the 
the doors are high and they've got the glass on the top. I saw her, she looked at me, and then she went away. And after that, I just went hysterical, and that's all I remember. I don't even remember thereafter what happened during the day. Why? Well, when you're traumatised, how do you remember things? That's why people, when they're traumatised, they go into shock. They forget. So that, that affected me. Now, some of you might say, oh, that affected you, but when my child went, they were okay. Maybe. Maybe they're okay, but you don't know. Some children can, but a lot of them, from what I've experienced and from what I've read as well, is that most children are traumatised because they're on their own. They might have been all right on the first day, they're excited, but then some kid might bully them when they're very young or they might fall down on the playground. And where's mummy? Mummy's got the headsets on at work and she's enjoying herself. Her coffee, long nails, the lipstick, the gloss, which I have to tell you a story about the gloss. So when I was sick a few years ago, and I didn't go out much. Then I started, I had to go out to do business, go to doctors, but also I had to go do shopping and things like that. And I noticed that a lot of women that were serving me, things like that, they had shiny lips. And at first I thought, did I just eat fish and chips or Kentucky Fry and it was all greasy? It was shiny. And then I mentioned to someone, and they said, oh, it's gloss, or whatever they call them, lip gloss. I said, what's that? They go, they put it on to make their lips glossy. I said, I thought it was grease. <laughs> I thought they weren't wiping their mouth. Anyway, so they're at work, and the child falls down, the child's crying. You know, when you've got a, one teacher for 30 children, it's a bit too much. When you've got the daycare, uh, daycare's, I think, one ratio, one to 12, um, something like that. Depends on the ages, I think. What is it, do you know? One to ten for all ages? From three to five. And then as well, from what I heard from people that are in the industry of daycare, uh, they have little sessions of putting on nail polish on the kids, including the boys. Including the boys. Because, you know, this gender thing. So, anyway... As long as the women are happy answering the phones and climbing the, the ladder in, in the corporate world, I'm a manager now. I get 120000 a year. Wow, do you? How much do you pay for the psychology, for the sessions for your child a year? Oh, about 30. What's well, 90 it leaves you? If you actually stayed at a lower level, didn't do it much... You wouldn't even need it. But anyway, that's another thing. That doesn't include the second car that she needs to go to work. So develop learning disabilities. Show poor skill development. They don't learn skills, how to do things. That's the psychological. That's just a few of them. There's a whole list of them. Now, behavioural. Display excessive temper. Attention-seeking. Exhibit aggressive behaviours. Now, you might say, isn't excessive temper the same as aggressive behaviour? A child can be aggressive through the way they speak and all that, but doesn't mean they're going to go into a tantrum. Two different things. You know, the way they speak. All right, then, like, they can speak like that. That's aggressive. But not necessarily a temper tantrum. Show irritability and anxiety. Are verbally abusive. Scream or cry excessively, not to two. Frighten easily, not to six. 
unable to trust others or make friends, three to six. Fear being separated from their parent or caregiver. Act withdrawn, lack self-confidence, show sadness and depression. Remember the Mayo Clinic, what I said a while ago, depressed children will often show more irritability when they're depressed. That's how they, well, adults, when they're depressed, they're more sad, kind of down. I don't want you to have this thought that, you know, he could be against feminism. You know, I don't want you to go away to think that I could be against feminism. Don't have that thought. I want to put you at rest. I am against it. That's the difference. I'm against it. It had good things in the beginning, and later on they've become monsters, incarnate monsters. Monsters that have taken on uh, a human body and they're destroying the world. I'm surprised on 60 Minutes that they showed that, that boy who wanted to become a girl so the mother allowed him to take hormones so then he developed breasts and all those type of things. And after a while, he said he doesn't want to be a girl anymore. He wants to be a back to a boy. So now he's got to go through an operation to cut the breasts off, etc., etc. Now, I don't know how they allowed that, because usually they don't put the opposite opinion on there. At least they did that. Good, you know, it's like children of same-sex marriages or couples... They always have the children of those who were brought up by two lesbians or two homosexuals and then shows the child all happy, etc. False. But there are so many examples of children that were brought up in those situations who are unhappy and hated it. But during these debates of same-sex couple adoptions and all these type of things, it wasn't allowed to be said. KGB stuff, you know, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay, now I'm going to read very quickly because people can become hopeless when they realise that, oh, I didn't bring up my children properly. It could be an older person. This is when, when they were young. Or parents who are now still, still got young children, but they've mucked up. And they can become hopeless. Now, Older Paisios gives us some hope. The first one... I'm going to read you, which I've read before twice, but because we're going to go into a pretty a doozy, as we say, today's talk, um, I think we need to read this. Hope for children whose parents made mistakes with them. So, St. Paisio says, children pay for the mistakes their parents make. Some parents destroy their children, but God is not unjust. He has great and special love for those children who have been wronged in this world either by their parents or by others. When parents are the reason why children take the wrong path in life, God will not abandon them, for they are entitled to divine help, the children are, entitled to help. God will provide so that the children are helped. For example, we see some young persons, even older ones, suddenly turn their lives around. And I add to that, that's he stops, and I add, and come back to the church and things like that. 
Now, I wasn't brought up. My parents obviously were orthodox. I was baptised young, but made no difference because I wasn't brought up in the church at all. I didn't even know that Holy Communion exists. Um, my parents made mistakes. Completely. But because I wasn't brought up properly, then I was entitled to divine help. And a lot of you weren't brought up in the church. And you are entitled to divine help. So God's not unjust. The next one, hope for parents who made mistakes with their children. So a person said, Elder, some parents who began leading a spiritual life at an advanced age regret that they didn't give their children a Christian upbringing when they were young. And then the saint answers, if they have true repentance and beseech God to help their children, God will do something for them. He, meaning God, will throw their children a lifesaver to help them escape the storm they're in. What storm? The storm of not being brought up as a Christian. The storm of not being orthodox, obviously. You see, there's people who are orthodox and they can cope with situations. And there's people who aren't, who haven't been brought up properly and they can't cope with anything, hardly. Even if they're successful. So he says, even if there are no people who will appear in order to help or, or guide these children who have been brought up without Christianity or spirituality, it may be that something they will see will contribute to turning their lives around and out of the storm. And what's this something? It could be cancer. It could be the death of a child. It could be a marriage problem. It could be unemployment. It could be financial problems. It could be uh, something. It could be anything. Read a book. See a miracle. That can help that person change their lives. That's what he's saying. Keep in mind that those parents who didn't bring up their children properly had good intentions, but they weren't helped by their family when they were young, and so they are entitled to divine help. So my parents didn't know much, but I don't think they were taught much by their parents. And maybe their parents weren't taught much by their parents. So it's um, a vicious circle, as we say. He didn't say, of course, what happens to the parents who do know about it and still continue to do bad to their children. But that's another topic, isn't it? I've got people who read books, listen to talks, etc., and they still bring up their children horribly. Now, what happens to them, I don't know. I haven't found a thing. I've got a feeling, but I won't say because I haven't read it yet. So when I find it for you, I'll tell you. But I don't think it's good. See, different. If you're ignorant, different. I remember my mother, before she passed away, when she could still speak, she actually said that one of the things that was burdening her was the fact that she didn't bring up the children me and my three sisters, in the church, completely away. Because they used to have a shop, as I've told you. The shop was open Saturday, Sunday, feast days, busker, like a restaurant type of thing. 
It was opened up all the time. But what I've noticed is that uh, they had the shop at Bondi, but what I noticed is there were some other Greeks down there that had milk bars and hamburger shops and all that. And it's interesting, because we left down there in, say, 68. I was um, 10, so we left. And then later on, when I returned to the church, I started going to the church down at Rose Bay, which is near Bondi. It's the closest. And some of the people that used to have shops that used to open up seven days a week were in the church and pious. So even they returned later on. Um, they realised their mistakes. Now, the next example is going to set us for the rest of the talk. You're going to listen to it and you're going to tell me what do you think this mother did to the child which caused problems? Because that's going to be our next topic. Well, most of you know what it is anyway. This is the same page you're speaking. When needed, the mother must be strict with the child. It does not help when she takes the child's side too readily, just so she won't cause sadness to the child. In Adana, somewhere in Greece, a widow had only one son. John was his name. When John grew up a little, she took him to a cobbler. Now, a cobbler is one who makes shoes, boots, and repairs them to learn the trade. So she took him there to become an apprentice. The boy stayed one week with the cobbler and then said to his mother, Mother, there's no need for me to go to the cobbler anymore. I have learned the trade in one week. How did you learn so quickly, my son, she asked. If you like, I can show you how they make shoes. Here, this is how they cut the sole, the leather. This is how they put on the heel and how they nail it. The master cobbler was very good and he really wanted to teach John the trade, seeing that he was an orphan and needed support. So he had an opportunity. This man really wanted to help the boy. When a week had passed and John did not show up at the cobbler's shop, he was worried about him and went to his house to ask his mother if the boy was sick. It's a very good person, isn't he? See, interested. What happened to John? He has not come back to the shop. Is he sick? No, said the mother. He's not sick. He's very well, she answered. Then why didn't he come back to work? Well, why should he go back, said the mother. John does not need to go back. He has already learned the trade, she said proudly. But how can you say that he's learned the trade in such a short time? So the man's trying to have logic with a crazy person. Then the mother proceeded to indicate to the cobbler how she too had learned the trade and she could make shoes as well because the son taught her. Right? The deception spreads like a disease worse than cancer. Cancer is good because it helps us to go to the next life. It prepares, you know, we know we're going to die we have confession, we commune, we prepare our souls. But this disease, not good. When he returned to the shop, the other apprentices asked about John. They said to the cobbler, well, what happened? Did you go to John's house? How is he? And the cobbler said to them, John is just fine. Not only has he learned the trade already, but his mother has as well. And then Elder Bayusra says, I see this behaviour in many parents today. They imagine that they love their children, but with the manner in which they treat them, they destroy them. When a mother, let's assume, out of excessive love, kisses her child and says, 
There's no other child in the world like my child. Then she's cultivating pride and a sixth sense of self-confidence. After that, the child will not be obedient to the parents because he presumes, he or she presumes they know everything. So what's the message? What, what is the theme? What did that mother do? Is that, yes? Vladimir, do you know? False confidence as well. They, they go along with the madness. As some might say, but if my child thinks that he's a priest and he starts doing service like little children do because they come to church, they start acting like priests or something like that. And should we say no? Well, it depends how old. When they're young, they fantasise. That's okay. They're playing games. They can think they're truck drivers. Others think they're policemen. Others think they're soldiers. But this was a grown person. Don't you think something's wrong? And what did she do? Did she tell him the truth? No. She went along with him because they think that by doing that, just like some parents, you know, I've seen Greeks, I don't know, others probably do it too, and they go, you're smart. And they think by saying that you're smart, the child's going to become smart. But that's, that's another story that we're going to come up to now. So... This topic of today is cultivating pride and a sick sense of self-confidence. You can have some confidence, but this is sick. This is psychopathic. After that, the child will not be obedient to the parents because he presumes he knows everything. So, for example, if your children don't listen to you, especially when they're young, because they know everything... It means you did a bad job. It means that you cultivated in that child to believe that they're good. And the school doesn't help either because that's all the time, as we'll hear coming up. So, how was she cultivating pride and a sick sense of self-confidence? By praising them. So how do parents do that? As I said before, by praising them and encouraging falsehood. Is all praise bad or is it okay to praise... Someone, if it's true, that's a question I'm, we're going to answer today. If certain praise is not good, then what are the effects of this type of praise? How does praise compare with all other abuses that we've talked about? Like, in other words, we've learned about overprotection, pressuring children, parents fighting, a lack of love, a lack of affection, a lack of attention, a lack of guidance. Can we put in this praise as being like an abuse? Is that gonna, can we add that to the list today? And before I go through this, because what I want to do is I want to first tell you what the world of psychology says. You don't have to stand when I'm doing the talk on psychology out of respect. I understand that, but you might distract because we all have to salute because we're going to talk about the best thing in the world, psychology. But before I talk about what the psychologists say, I want to talk about something else, about food. Now, you say, what's food got to do with today apart from the food you're going to have soon? Well, I'll tell you. I went through and, and researched the following. Foods that used to be bad for you but now aren't. For a long time, eggs were thought to be bad for your heart because they contain cholesterol. 
But for the last 20 years, nutrition and medical research has shown repeatedly that at normal intakes, dietary cholesterol has very little influence on a person's blood cholesterol level. Now, eggs are considered an excellent source of protein, healthy fats, and several vitamins and minerals. Why am I bringing that up? I'll tell you in a minute. Now, nuts. Nuts also get a bad reputation for being high in fat and high in calories, leading some to suggest that they should be avoided by anyone looking to lose weight. But there is mounting evidence to suggest that raw nuts are key to a healthy diet and maintaining healthy body weight. A recent study published in the British Journal of Nutrition showed that eating raw nuts reduces death from all causes cardiovascular diseases, coronary heart disease, and sudden cardiac death. In other words, nuts are good for your heart. But for many years, we were told that's no good because they're fattening. That's two. One more. Advice on low-fat diet and cholesterol is wrong. And you, do you know why I'm telling you all this? Because like in the world of food, they're changing all the time. It's the same in psychology. It's always changing, changing, changing all the time. Every few years it changes. The National Obesity Forum and the public health collaboration in the UK call for a return to whole foods such as meat, fish and dairy, as well as high-fat, healthy foods, including avocados, because that of avocados was very bad before, arguing eating fat does not make you fat. The report also argues that saturated fat does not cause heart diseases, while full-fat dairy, including milk, yogurt, cheese, can actually protect the heart. Processed foods labelled low-fat and light, low cholesterol, or other things which say proven to lower cholesterol, these labels that they have, should be avoided at all costs. And people with type 2 diabetes should eat a fat-rich diet rather than one based on carbohydrates. The report added, eating a diet rich in full-fat dairy, such as cheese, milk and yoghurt, can actually lower the chance of obesity. Now, some of you, for example, you go to the shop and you buy white water. That's not good. You know what the white water is? Skim milk. I call it white water. Water that's been coloured white. And you drink it and then you wonder why then you get hungry. Then Dr. Asim Malhotra, whatever, consulted cardiologist and founding member of the Public Health Collaboration, a group of medics, said dietary guidelines promoting low-fat foods were perhaps the biggest mistake in modern medical history, resulting in devastating consequences for public health. And then I found one little quote there. Eat fat to get slim. Don't fear fat. Fat is your friend. It's now truly time to bring back the fat. <laughs> that was basically the gist of the article. Did you know that olive oil, they said, was bad too at one stage? Olive oil, which has been used in the Mediterranean for centuries, all of a sudden they said, no, you shouldn't use that. You should use vegetable oil, like canola, which you can also use for car engine oil. In Manatha, some monasteries count that type of oil, not even oil. So on days where the calendar says no oil, meaning no olive oil, because olive oil is proper, some monasteries actually have um, 
tahini. They make tahini soup. Or they have tahini with bread in the morning. And they count that as no oil. Now, if you have something like a tahini or some those type of stuff, you go to work, I'm telling you, by morning, you're out to the canteen to get food because you'll be starving. But you have olive oil, you become satisfied. And it's healthy for you. Extra virgin olive oil. And we know that the Greeks and a lot of countries that have olive oil live a long time. But you're not going to live a long time when you have car oil, like canola and things like that. Then there was the muck-up with the margarine. They said, oh, you've got to have margarine. Margarine's good until they found out that there was some ingredient I put in there to help it spread, which was, uh, what's it called? Where's, where's the Trans fat stuff, and then they took it out now. But I saw as well that a lot of those margarines are no good for the eyes. Butter, have butter. Butter's better for you, it satisfies you, it's healthier. Also, they con you because it depends on who's doing the research. So, for example, the margarine producers get scientists to do research and then produce and say, margarine's better than butter, so they can sell their margarine. Just like in America, they went through a stage where a lot of the producers of grain, like corn and all that, they said, this is good for you, you have to have this in your diet. And then came the cornflakes and things like that and oats. And they are probably good, but they overdid it and made people become like horses, because horses eat oats. And people were eating like horses, eating oats all the time. How can you live off oats? Don't have eggs, because that's bad for you. Don't have butter, because that's bad for you. Not too much meat, because that's... Not, not, some people wouldn't stop the meat. Anyway, so why I brought that up is to show that the secular world, in some ways, is crazy. With all their ever-changing theories. Theories that are changing continually. So now let's go into the world of psychology. Today's talk is about praise. So I want to go through the history a little bit, the effects, and what the current theory is. Now, in some cultures, such as East Asian cultures, praise is rare. Despite this, the children seem to be very motivated. All you've got to do is go into the schools here where there's a lot of Chinese that come in as um, international students, and um, they come in hardly no English, but at the end they come first. And those children, like it says, for example, in China, praise is rare. Why? People worry about the effects of praise. That hasn't got a good effect. That too much praise will inflate the ego. In other words, they don't want their children to become too big for their boots. It's a fear. Yet they seem to be going all right, these, um, these Chinese. Also, praising children was a concern in many ancient cultures. Today, people whose way of life most closely resemble those of our ancestors are especially known to be intolerant of big egos. So cultures around the world, which are a little bit, one can say, um, plain, simple cultures, not like the West, a lot of them still know that ego is bad. And they're very careful for their children not to become like that. 
It used to be that way in the West too. But today things are different. Westerners praise each other all the time and heap praise on their children. They believe praise is going to make kids better, more motivated, more confident, more inclined to tackle challenges in life. So in the West, it used to be like that too. But it changed. When did it change? So let's have a look. The article that I found was Good Job. Is Praising Young Children a Good Idea? By Lauren Lowry, uh, speech language pathologist and clinical writer. Let's see what she says. These are her words. Good job. Give me five. Awesome. What a beautiful picture. Like when a kid draws a little picture, even though it might be ugly. What a beautiful picture. These are a sampling of encouraging phrases you might hear at any playground, preschool, or anywhere else young children hang out. This is she speaking now, right? I'd never really given these words or the idea of praise much thought. I praise my own children when they accomplish something challenging or new, and I also praise the children who come to me for speech pathology. After all, children with communication difficulties can really struggle sometimes. Shouldn't we acknowledge their efforts? So she listed a few, I listed a few more. There's high five, that's great, fantastic, cool, wow, very good, excellent. So you ring up these call centres, you might ring up there you know, for the telephone or for the gas. They've got to identify you. Okay, so I've got to ask you a few questions before I can discuss your account. Okay, what is it? Um, what's your name? So you say your name. Fantastic. <laughs> what's the date of your birth? 16, 12, 58. Great. What's your street address? Wonderful. <laughs> and then you say, I'm just saying my address. You... That's, but that's what they're taught by their people that train them. You've got to praise the person continually. So let's go on with this Lauren, the speech language pathologist. So she said, you can imagine my surprise then when I attended a parenting talk at my son's school which addressed the negative effects of praise on children. Apparently, what she learned at this meeting, praise manipulates children so that they do what the adult wants them to do. It can also decrease a child's motivation and a sense of achievement. Yikes, she writes at the end, yikes. You know, yikes is an expression which means shock and alarm, but in a bit of a funny way. I don't think it's funny. It's actually tragic. But maybe she might have thought it was like that in the beginning, but when you, when you look into it more, it's not just yikes, it's actually... Tragedy. How it all started. The idea of using praise to motivate children really took off after the publication of this book called The Psychology of Self Esteem in 1969, which suggested that many of the problems of American society resulted from lack of self esteem. So they realised in the 60s that children had a lot of problems and people had a lot of problems. So they came to the conclusions because they got low self-esteem, not because of the sexual revolution, not because of the drug culture, none of that. All those things didn't cause problems. It was the fact that they lacked self-esteem. 
And let's move on. Experts say that educators were becoming increasingly aware that many of their students were dealing with stressful circumstances outside of school and they needed something positive to build their sense of self. What was happening was that many of the homes in America were going through divorces, problems and all these things and the children were coming to school disturbed and lacking self-esteem. So they said, oh, we've got to build up their self-esteem. Self-esteem is difficult to define. On the most basic level, it can be defined as how one views themselves. The concept of self-esteem can be divided into two major categories, worth, like as a person, your worth, and competence, like how good you do things. The self-esteem movement was assumed to be so effective that the children of the movement would be the first fruits, and I've underlined it, of a better, more positive and productive society. So these mad people actually said, now, we're going to build the self-esteem of children, and by doing that, we're going to produce children that are more positive, and we're going to make a productive society. That's what they thought. When this movement started, they produced a game called the Magic Circle Game. Now, that's a game that many children play at school. The game works like this. Each day, one child is given a badge that says, I'm great. Then the other children take turns praising the great child, and eventually these compliments are written down and given to the child to take home. Now, some people will say that's harmless, but as a priest, but especially as a monk as well, we know what praise is. This is, this is demonic. Now, you might say, that's your opinion, but we didn't come to hear your opinion, and that's good. I don't want you to hear my opinion. We'll hear what the fathers and all that say later on. I'm going to go through ancient fathers. I'm going to go through some lives of saints. I want to go through modern fathers to see what they say. But just think of it. See, I'm very conscious of these things. In my younger years, when I had contact with families that had children, one of the biggest things I used to point out to them was don't do that. Don't praise. Be careful of that. Don't laugh at the child. You're encouraging them to be like, like to keep on doing silly. All these things. Some parents listened. Most didn't. They thought, oh, he's, he's, something's wrong there. And at the end, those children did turn out to have problems. I was very conscious of that. I taught parents, don't praise your children because you're not going to produce good results. And that's before I knew about all this. This is, a, this is pretty much the first time I'm, I'm reading all this. I've never, I never knew the history. In the 1980s and 1990s, some scholars started to argue that praise can undermine children's motivation, create pressure to continue performing well, discourage risk-taking, and reduce independence. On this topic, Alfie Cohn, an American author and lecturer in the areas of education, parenting, and human behaviour, explains why praise may be harmful for young children, claiming the following. Number one, it manipulates children. Praise is a way of getting children to comply with adults' wishes. 
This works in the short term because young children want adults' approval, but Cohn argues that we should not take advantage of children's dependence on you, on, on the parents. Or because they're dependent on you, you shouldn't use these techniques. Now, if you do that, then I'll give you that. Or, or good, or whatever. It's no good. Then he says, this constant praising creates praise junkies. You know what a junkie is? Like an addict, a drug addict. So like a drug addict's continually wanting to get high, an alcoholic continually wants alcohol, a gambler continually wants to gamble, those who are addicted to sex or pornography, they're addicted. He goes that by praising children continually, you're actually creating drug addicts in the sense that they want constant praise. This is what he's saying. It decreases interest. I think what he means is interest in learning. It reduces achievement. It doesn't have good results. That's what he's saying. Now, Professor Mayer, a psychologist, he wrote in 1992, if you praise kids for an easy task, kids may conclude there's something wrong with you Either you're too dumb to realise how easy that task is or you think the kids are dumb. Now, what does he mean? I hope you took, some of you understand. Some of you need a bit of explanation. So you say to a child, can you put your cup that you used into the sink? Child does it. Very good, very good, good boy. They're fantastic. Parents do that. Now, the kid, if it gets a bit older, goes... What's wrong? I just put the cup there. It doesn't, that's not special. For those who listen to the tape, I'd put my fingers around my mind, meaning that crazy. Or they get the opposite where they go, does he think I'm dumb? Like, is he making fun of me? Oh, good boy, you carried the cup to the sink. That's the thing that we're doing. Good, you ate all your food. Instead of saying, if you don't eat your food, then you're not going to become strong or you're not going to go well. But instead of saying, good, you ate all your food, here's 20 cents. So we even, we even bribe them. Then there's other parents who have like a reward system in their house, like a chart. Bobby, that's the name of the child, Bobby. And they get little stars when they do things. So Bobby here has got a star because he had a shower. Then another one, Bobby, gets another star because he went to the toilet successfully. And things like that. And it goes on and on and on. These things are sick. And the child actually grows up to say, my parents not. <laughs> Something's wrong there. Okay, then we go to the next one. Two articles. I think they were both produced in 2007. This will tell you how bad it is. The first article was published in the Wall Street Journal. Okay, this is a very serious journal. It was published April the 20th, 2007. Titled, The Most Praised Generation Goes to Work. That's 2007, the movement started 70. So, 2007, so you've got kids that are in the 20s, late 20s, were children who were brought up in this self-esteem movement. And now they're finally going to work. And let's see what happens. The author and journalist Jeffrey Zaslow. Now, the article says he sheds light 
on how these self-esteem children are doing as young adults. He reports that both bosses and professors are feeling the need to constantly praise young adults, particularly those in their 20s, or else they would wither under a compliment deficit, something they're not used to. Now, it means that professors, universities and bosses have noticed that these kids that have been brought up in this praise movement, this self-esteem movement, you've got to constantly praise them. If you don't, they wither. Now, what does wither mean? Like a plant. You don't give it water, see how it just dies slowly? That's how they are. You've got to constantly water them with praise. Plants are like that. You've got to give them a lot of water because they wither very quickly. We've got a garden back at the monastery there and we've got all plants. When it's hot, they look like they're just all collapsed. You've got to give water or they'll die. So these poor kids, you've got to water them continually with praise. And they're not used to not getting praise. It says something they're not used to. They need to be praised continually. He adds that a lot of today's young adults tend to feel insecure if they're not regularly stroked or complimented. Like you stroke a cat, you got to stroke them verbally. Remember that joke I said to you? Oh, it's good. Thank you for that. It's really, really good. Thank you for making that photocopy for me. And some of you thought it was silly. I never read that when I said all those things, but, it, but it's true. They've got to compliment them all the time. What's more, corporations are going so far as to hire consultants to teach managers how to compliment employees using email and prize packages for simply doing little more than showing up to work. So if they come to work, at least they come to work, uh, you got an email. Good job, you came to work today on the email. You think it's funny, but this is, this is what happened in the movement. This is, this is, these are the kids. Simple things. And you give them prizes, I don't know what you give them. What kind of prize they get? They get a little carton of orange juice. I don't know what they get, but it doesn't matter. They just want to be complimented for the most little things. And if you don't compliment them, what they're saying is you won't get much work out of them. The second article by the Associated Press, I would assume that was around 2007 too, uh, cites a new study that found today's college students are significantly more narcissistic than previous students. Narcissistic. That's serious to be called narcissistic. Narcissism is a personality disorder marked specifically by an inflated sense of self-importance, a lack of empathy, in other words, a lack of feeling for people, an incapability of learning from others, an inability to accept criticism even if it's constructive criticism. That is an explosive sentence. That these children that are now adults that have been brought up in the self-esteem movement have narcissistic tendencies. What is that? They have an inflated sense of importance. They think higher of themselves than what they really are. Lack empathy. That's very serious, lack empathy. Because a lot of people today do lack empathy, and I've often wondered why. How come they don't feel? How come they don't feel? Why is it that they lack feeling? I suffer from that a bit too, but some that I've witnessed are really bad. 
lack empathy, they don't feel for people. They are incapable of learning from others. It's just they're in their own little world, they don't care about others, they don't learn from others, and you can't tell them their fault. You can't tell them anything, even if it's positive. I have that problem too. As a priest, when I deal with Orthodox Christians, just think of it, not some pagan or some heretic or heterodox, whatever you call them, Orthodox Christians that are supposedly struggling and praying, you've got to be very careful to say something to them because they explode. They explode. It's that difficult. And even when you say, but what I'm telling you is for you, it's for your good, doesn't matter. They react very badly. Psychologists worry that the trend could be harmful to personal relationships and American society in general. Because these people who have been praised a lot and because they were praised are narcissistic, find it difficult to have relationships. And therefore, the divorces and very bad for society. The researchers who conducted the study describe it as the largest ever of its type and report that the average college student was 30% more narcissistic than the average student in 1982. My note now, that's the end of that. So much for the belief that the self-esteem movement was to be, and what I read before, so effective that children of the movement would be the first fruits of a better, more positive and productive society. So much for that. And did it, the self-esteem movement, did it produce a society like that? I don't think so. Let's reread it. We should say to be the first fruits of a worse, more negative and unproductive society. That's what we should say. That's the effect of the self-esteem movement, not what they thought, that we're going to have a better, more positive and productive society. That's it for that. We're going to have the sandwiches now, or you're going to have it. And we will continue on. A lot to go. Uh, I've got to tell you the current theory of what they think you should do with your... Now that they've realised they were wrong, I have to tell you the current theory. And after I give you the current theory, then we go on to the churches. That's important. We've heard the past of what they believed, the effect, and the current theory. But after the first part that I've done, you just feel like having a shower because it's so disgusting. Spiritually, it's horrible. And as I said, as a priest, as a monk, when I see that was happening to children, and I knew these parents are setting their children up to become possessed. Now you say, I'm not interested in your opinion, and I'm glad. I'm glad that you're not interested in my opinion. I want you to hear what the saints say about it. That's what I thought. I'm telling you what I thought many years ago, and still do, before I researched this. I believe that parents who were praising their children were setting their children up to be monsters, disasters, psychopaths, and... um, Uh, unbelievers, egotists, and people that are demonic. That's what I believed and still do. But I never said it to that extent because 
I don't like saying things which is what I believe without knowing for sure. But I'm going to tell you what the fathers teach and all that. Okay, how's the sandwiches? The next article, which is called Child Development, the right kind of early praise predicts positive attitudes towards effort. And this is from February the 12th, 2013, from Science Daily. Now, here they say, toddlers whose parents praise their efforts more than they praise them as individuals had a more positive approach to challenges five years later. Toddlers who hear praise directed at their efforts, such as you worked hard on that, are more likely to prefer challenging tasks versus easy tasks and to believe that intelligence and personality can improve with effort than do youngsters who simply hear praise directed at them personally, such as you're a good girl, good boy, you know, things like that. New research at the University of Chicago reveals. So, they're saying, this particular research is saying that if you praise a child for its effort, that's good, that will have good results. But if you praise them as individuals, that's negative, that's not good. This is the theory pretty much the current theory. Even a teacher told me that at her school, they've had these, you know, sessions there where they actually speak about praising the effort. Now, one of the main people who discovered this was Dr. Carol Dweck. She's, I think, one of the main ones. And over 30 years ago, Dr. Carol Dweck, professor of psychology at Stanford University, and her colleagues became interested in students' attitudes about failure. They noticed that some students recovered while other students seemed devastated by even the smallest setbacks, like smallest failures. And we see that. Some of you will see in your children. You can have a child that, if they make a mistake, it's like they crumble. Then you can have another child who makes a mistake and then they get up and they try again or keep on going or whatever. After studying the behaviour of thousands of children, Dr Dweck created the terms fixed mindset and growth mindset to describe the underlying beliefs people have about learning and intelligence. When students believe they can get smarter, they understand that effort makes them stronger. Therefore, they put in extra time and effort and that leads to higher achievement. So overall, praise for intelligence actually led to less perseverance, less enjoyment, and worse performance than those children who were praised for their effort. So we have two scenarios. We've got one child here and one child there. Same age, let's just say same background. The first child, we say... You're smart, which a lot of parents do that. You're smart. You're praising their intelligence, them personally. Like you're good, you're smart, you're great, all those stupidities. Then we go to the second child and you say to them, you put good effort into that and if you put even more, you can improve. 
When students were praised for having high ability, they associated the success to a fixed and unchangeable quality of themselves, while students praised for effort believed that their performance was subject to improvement. So when you say to a child, you're smart, that's it, full stop, they're smart. So for them, they're already smart. They don't have to improve, they're smart. And that's called a fixed mindset. Fixed in that they believe that where they are is where they are. There's no need to try more. But when you praise the child for the effort, they're saying, this is called a growth mindset, that they believe that they can grow and become better, smarter, more productive or whatever, you know, have developed more skills. When students were praised for having high ability, they associated their success to a fixed and unchangeable quality of themselves, in other words, fixed mindset, while students praised for effort believed that their performance was subject to improvement, in other words, growth mindset. Dr. Dwight argues that the growth mindset will allow a person to live a less stressful and more successful life than a child who has got a fixed mindset who thinks what they are is what they are. That is the current theory, I think, from what I've understood. Now, there's a lot out there, and to tell you the truth, I, I can't be bothered to do it all. It's a bit too much for me. Uh, but I think I pretty much got it, I think. Maybe there's more to it, I don't know. But I think that's a simplified version of what is out there. So now they're going away from the good boy, excellent, you're great, you're smart, fantastics, and all these stupidities. And now they're going to praising the effort. Okay, now let's look what the church teaches. I'm going to use the Bible, I'm going to use the lives of saints, and I'm going to use the teachings of the saints and elders, old, ancient, and modern. Because remember that when we read things, I've always warned you, be careful when you read especially writings of ancient saints because you can misinterpret what they're saying. And we can read them, but we always go to the saints that are close to us, living in our times, so they can explain the ancient fathers of the church. And also there's issues that exist now which didn't exist before, like television and a lot of the things which exist today, internet. So we turn to the modern fathers who did deal with those problems. We say modern in contemporary. We like St. Paisios, Elder Porfirios, St. Eustin Poevich, St. Uh, he's not a saint as yet, but obviously he's a saint, but not officially. Father John Christiankin of the Russian Church. There's Romanian, Elder Cleopas, Stadeos of Serbia. There's so many people who have lived close to our times. And I love reading them because they help me understand the ancient saints, who when these ancient saints speak, sometimes they're speaking in a language, in a way which... Um, is difficult to understand, and that's why people get mixed up. So it's important to read the contemporary saints. So let's do the Bible first. Jesus cleanses a leper. I'm not going to read it all because we haven't got time. 
I'll just read one part of it. Now a leper came to him and begged him on his knees and said to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he, meaning Christ, strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. See that you say nothing to anyone. We're going to see why did he say that. The second one is Jesus heals a deaf mute, a man who was deaf and he had a speech impediment. I'll read one part. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. That's another example where Christ tells them, don't tell people about the miracle. And the third one, a girl restored to life. Her father was the ruler of the synagogue, remember that? And then Christ said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. So three gospel examples of where Christ commanded them strictly, don't tell anyone about the miracle. So the question is, why did he tell the disciples, or those who performed it, to tell no one what happened? Because he said it to the disciples, but he also said it to the people who he did the miracle with. Now, St. Theophan the recluse explains it. He says, having resurrected the little girl, the Lord commanded her parents strictly that no one should know it. Thus are we commanded to not seek glory. Do not train your ear for human praise. Even if your deeds are of such a nature that it is impossible to hide them, do what the fear of God and your conscience urge you to do, and as to what people say, act as though you had never heard it. So he says, do what your conscience says if you have to do something which could give you glory, do what your conscience says, but when you hear praises, act as if you never heard it. Avoid praise. And Christ, as God, did not fall into the spirit of vainglory. He didn't have to say to those people, don't tell anyone. There was no fear that he, as God, was going to fall into pride, but he wanted to teach us that when we do good deeds, don't seek praise. Don't train your ears, meaning don't get your ears used to people praising you. And two in St. Paul's epistles, two quotes, Philippians chapter 2, 3 to 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility think of others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So we as Christians should not seek selfish ambition and vainglory to show off. And as I've said before, those Facebooks, and all that, that's all to do with vainglory. It's full of vainglory. Now, churches use Facebook, but they use it for the church. I mean, I don't like it. Personally, I don't want my face splattered around the world. You know, I just don't like it. That's me. But some churches use them to help people to bring them, I don't know about it. But that's a bit different to when you've got a Facebook of yourself. 
Then when you click the photo gallery, then you get a hundred pictures of yourself. The same person. One with a smile to the left, one to the smile to the right, one with the eyes looking up, one with the eyes looking down, one sitting one way, one sitting the other way. I mean, how much can you look at it? One with the hair in a ponytail, another with the hair out. One with one shade of lipstick, another with another shade of lipstick. One with mascara that looks like something from a horror show. Another with a little bit of mascara. It's, just, why, what's that? it's all vainglory. Now, you might say, I've got teenagers that are on Facebook. What can I do? You can't hardly do anything. They haven't been brought up properly. If you taught your children from young to not like vainglory, to not want to be praised, they wouldn't be seeking these things. It's how you brought your children up. So if you've got your child there and you're sitting there with your friends or your relatives and the child does something and everyone's laughing, oh, isn't that cute, isn't that this? So you're given attention, attention. So that child learns that and then he seeks it. So the other one, he says, on the same one, sorry, he said, let each look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others and always look at others as better than yourselves. Well, what did we notice about the Wall Street Journal, one of those two, the Associated Press or the other one? It said that those people uh, cannot learn from others, self-centred, they don't have empathy. The world revolves around them. They have no interest about others and surely they don't think of others as being better than themselves. And Galatians chapter 6, line 3, St Paul states, for if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Even St. Paisius in his writings said, it used to drive him mad, he said that you've got some people who are nothing and they think highly of themselves. And I understand that. He goes, if someone is something or has got some skill or something exceptional, then you can understand that that person would find it a little bit difficult to combat the vainglory. But when they haven't got anything and they're proud that they're good, he says that's sickening, that's deceived. They, they deceive themselves. It doesn't mean that if someone's good that they should parade it. But if they are parading it a little bit, it's because they do have something. But like that stupid little boy in the, whatever he was, the cobbler, where he goes, the mother was praising him, oh, he knows how to make shoes. I don't think so. And she said, oh, he knows how to make shoes, he even showed me. I'm sure if you wear one of his shoes, well, you have to go to the podiatrist after, because he's not going to know how to make it. Let's now go to the next thing, which is called the Evergetinos. Now, the Evergetinos is about ancient desert fathers and what they taught and, and about examples. Those books are excellent. I found, I think, the best one. It's called the Evergetinos, E-V-E-R-G-E-T-I-N-O-S, a complete text. There's four books, four volumes, and it's produced by Center for Traditionalist Orthodox Studies, and they're at Etna, California, USA. I like the translation. They've got a hard language. And when you read these books, it changes you. 
Now, parts of those books St. Nicola uses in his prologue, and also part of those books are in Lives of Saints, in the Lives of Saints of some of these elders. There are references which are extreme, like, you know, they didn't drink water for days or something like that. That's not for us. But there's a lot of things in there about humility, and their examples are great. If you can afford it, I would advise you to get them. And they're good to read to your children as well, because you're teaching the children from young how to think in an orthodox way. Now, I'll read you the first thing that I found when I was... So I'll, go, I'll, I'll go to the Evetikatinos, book two, and I'll find something on praise. He who praises a monk hands him over to Satan. Now, that's extreme, one would say. It's extreme. We're not monks. Well, I am, but you're not. We're just, I'm just talking like you're speaking. We're not monks. We're not nuns. We live in the world. We've got families. Does this apply to us? Maybe this is like what you said before, that they used to sleep on the floor. They used to sleep on the floor or on the ground. We don't do that. So maybe this is the same type of thing. doesn't apply to us. He who praises a monk hands him over to Satan. I won't explain it. I'll go on. And then we'll see whether this does apply for people in the world. You know, someone can say, are you saying that if we praise our children that we hand the child over to Satan? That sounds fanatical. These are 15, 600 years ago. Can't apply now. Another example in there, an elder named John once was visited by someone who complimented him on his handiwork. See, the Desert Fathers in Egypt and Palestine, they used to do handiwork. They would do the handiwork, pray, and certain hours in the day they would make baskets or ropes and things like that. So he was doing his handiwork, and someone visited him and complimented him. The elder remained silent. Again, his visitor complimented him on his handiwork, and once more... The elder remained silent. When the visitor complimented him a third time, Elder John told him, from the moment that you came in here, you removed God far from me. So from the moment that you came here and praised me, I felt that God has left me. Again, could be extreme, maybe, maybe not, who knows. We'll see in a minute, won't we? Another one. So far, we've noticed that the monks and nuns don't like to be praised. A certain elder, this is from the same book, Evegetinos, a certain elder was living in a remote area in ascetic quietude. He was served by a layman who had a son. So the elder lived on his own. He was an ascetic, a hermit, and a layman who was married with a son would come and give him some food every so often. It so happened that the layman's son became ill and the layman begged the elder to go to pray over his ill son. Usually, the saints avoided that. Why did they avoid it? Because they didn't want to be praised or they felt themselves unworthy to pray. Immediately, the elder left his cell. However, in this case, he decided to go and he left together with the layman. 
Now the layman ran ahead and went to his house. He quickly gathered his relatives and neighbors and said to them, Come, let us go to meet the ascetic. Immediately a great number of people came running. As soon as the elder saw them coming from a distance, he understood what was happening, so he took off his clothes and started washing them in the river, standing completely naked. When the boy's father saw him like that, he was humiliated. He asked the people to return to their homes since the elder, as he told them, had lost his mind. Approaching the elder, he said, Why, elder, did you do this, causing scandal to everyone? Because everyone who saw you said the elder is demonised, the elder is possessed to be standing there with nothing on, washing his clothes in the river. To this the abba replied, the elder, and that is just what I wanted to hear. That's what he wanted to hear. He wanted to be called possessed. He wanted to be called crazy. He didn't want to be praised. That's how much they detested praise. Now, is that example telling us for people to wash their clothes in the nude? I don't think so. <laughs> it's not saying that. Or to say to your children, you should take off your clothes and go public, and that way you learn humility. Now, some crazy parents might do that. When I say crazy, I'm not making fun of mentally ill people. I'm meaning crazy in the sense what they're doing. If you read the saints, they also use similar words. Idiot, silly, stupid, in reference to the things that they were doing which were wrong. Not making fun or putting down people who have got mental problems. That's not what I'm doing. So there's an example where we read it. And we are presented with this not so that we can do this or teach our children to do it for humility. That's not what... This example is teaching us to what level these people, these saints, went to avoid praise. And that's the lesson in this, that he went to that level. Now, he was able to go in the nude and go and wash his clothes because he was... Like a lot of the saints, not all of them, but a lot of the saints were passionless. They didn't become sexually aroused, one can say. So he didn't do it for sexual reasons. He did it to be humiliated. And that's what we should get out of it, that the extent that the saints went to hide their virtue and not to be praised. Now, you say, okay, well, if he did that not to be praised, what should we do? Well, one... Don't have Facebook. Don't show off. Don't seek to be praised. Simple things we can do. That's what we do as Christians. There's no need to, you know, to do those type of things. Another one from the lives of saints. We've left the Avergetinos. Now we'll go to the lives of saints. Saint Michael, food for Christ of the Klops Monastery, Novogorod. Did he say Novogorod? Is that it? Well, if you don't know, I wouldn't know, because if you're Russian and you don't know, then I'm, I'm doing pretty good. A Russian of princely family, he made himself a fool for Christ in order to hide his virtues and avoid the praise of men. Now, fool for Christ was unknown in the church until the first fool for just St. Simeon, of, which we're going to read in a minute. The fathers of the church were very wary about this. They didn't like it. They thought it was like a deception. They had never seen it before. They thought it could lead people into vainglory or something like that. Anyway, when someone's a fool for Christ, someone who wants to be 
put down, to be spat upon, to be made fun of, to be treated horribly, to be thought of as being mad, etc. That is the hardest of all the different types of ascetical life in the um, church. It's one of the hardest forms of asceticism, even harder than living in the desert. Very difficult. So this particular one, he lived in the 15th century. Firstly, he was of princely family. He was royalty. And he gave all that up. And he acted like a fool so as to hide his virtues and avoid the praise of men. So if someone was living in a village and he was just a farmer and he became a fool for Christ, still something. But when you're a prince and you leave all that to become a fool for Christ and to be poor where before people had respect for you and now people are putting you down. That's a really big podvig, as we say. That's a big thing. He dressed in rags so that he would be despised and ridiculed by people, but he received praise from God. He died in the year 1453 in the Klops Monastery where his relics are preserved. What do we learn from that? To act like fools. No. When we read these to children, do we say to them to act like fools? No. So what do we learn? We learn that the saints were very careful not to receive praise from people. And it says here, he dressed in rags. We don't have to dress in rags, but it doesn't mean we have to dress ourselves up like a Christmas tree, like something that everyone's looking at you. Like it's coming to Christmas soon. Martin Place is going to have the big Christmas tree for the flashing lights. Sometimes people dress like that. Like they're so out there that people can't help looking at them. And that's wrong. So we look at the example of St. Michael and say, well, he dressed in rags. God doesn't want me to dress in rags. He doesn't want my children to dress in rags. But let's not show off. Let's just wear simple things. And on top of that, he was despised and ridiculed by people. Well, we don't have to go out of our way for people to hate us and to make fun of us. We don't do that. But what we do is if someone comes along with God's permission and says one of our faults or puts us down a little bit, what do we do? Shut our mouths. Instead of reacting and becoming, I, I hate that person, what he said about me, and have thoughts about that person continually and think of ways of revenging and you know, things like that. That's what we're required to do. Not dress in rags, not go out and provoke people like these saints did, they provoked people on purpose to be spat on and to be hated. Now, our Holy Mother Isadora of Egypt, the fool for Christ, that's another one, she was a nun who lived in the monastery and they all thought she was crazy. She worked in the kitchen. Uh, she used to serve everyone, do everything, a lot of things. A lot of the nuns were cruel to her. They even used to hit her. And you say, well, how is a nun doing? Well, these things happen in monasteries. They're not... Monasteries don't house angels. Monasteries house people that have got passions. Like your family. Your family is not a family with angels. It's got anger, jealousies, get upset, irritation, ego, etc. That's how it is. Same as your house, the same in the monastery. Anyway, there were some horrible little nuns there that would hit her, make fun of her, call her crazy, etc. And then an elder got proud that he was something and then God allowed a dream to occur where he says if you want to see someone who's who's good go to that monastery and not only that she's a woman as well 
and there you'll see a great saint. And he says, and she'll be wearing a rag on her head because she used to do things that were silly. So he went to the monastery and he looked for her. And then he said to the abbess, I want all the nuns out here. So all the nuns came out and he couldn't see that one that he saw in his dream, the nun with the rag on her head. And then he said to the abbess, are these all your nuns? Yes. Because no, no, someone's missing. Oh, there is one person, but she's crazy. She's in the kitchen. Don't worry about her. He goes, no, I want to see her. So they brought her out. Or she didn't want to come out anyway. They dragged her out and all that. And then he saw her and then he did a prostration to her. And the nuns were saying, no, no, Elder, don't do that. She's crazy. She's crazy. You don't do that and things like that. Anyway, he goes, crazy. She's an ama. Ama, like we say, ava. This is how they used to say in the, in the desert, the Palestinian and Egypt. Ava is like what we say, elder. And ama, like you say, eldress. Someone who was of a high spiritual... He goes, she's an ama. And then it says, all praised and honoured the Saint Isadora for several days. They were saying, forgive me, forgive me. They were amazed that she was holy. They didn't know. And she could no longer endure the burden of their constant apologies and praises. So to escape this honour, she fled from the monastery secretly and disappeared. So what do we learn from that? Don't seek praise. What else do we learn? Close the Facebook account. Close it. I'm telling you, it's not a joke. That is full of vainglory. Full of vainglory. If you want to listen, you don't have to. There's no canon saying you've got to close it. Say if I was still doing confessions, which I avoid, but if I was still doing confession and someone says to me, Father, I want to come to you. I believe you can help me. I want to be saved. Can you please guide me and confess me, etc.? I go... Oh, I don't do it. Please, please, please. You know, I need your help. And I say, oh, all right. And then we start helping. And then I find out they've got a Facebook account. And I say to them, well, if you want me to continue to help you, you've got to get rid of the Facebook account. And they say, no, not the Facebook account. No, I'll do anything, but not the Facebook account. I said, no, nah, because there's no point. How am I going to teach you about humility when I'm teaching you humility now? And then you go home and you go on your Facebook for two, three hours, and post pictures of yourself. And not only that, you got the comments on the side of people calling you names, not like the saints, other names. What a doll. And if they're Greek, kukla. <laughs> the Greeks understood it, that was the laugh. <laughs> kukla means doll. Goes, what a kukla. Thanks, so are you. <laughs> and then you work out who it was. You see the name underneath Barbie. <laughs> and then there's other names there. There was one that I saw someone showed it to me. You're so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm not going to waste my time with that. So you close the account or goodbye? Most of the time they said goodbye. You know, my hands have got muscles from doing goodbyes. That's what I do all the time. Bye-bye. Once someone showed me a Facebook of some people and I was in stitches. Sorry, I was so funny. 
I thought I was watching a comedy. I go, is this real? They go, yeah, this is real. But when I saw the kukla, that one knocked me out. That one was the best one. Where are we up to? Okay, new one. What? Yes. Oh, yeah, I know. Another classic, uh, the Indian was another, but another classic was there was a brother and sister and they were going back and forth. I don't know if that's the Twitter or what, Facebook, whatever. They were going back and forth until it was worked out that they were in the same house and they were uh, emailing each other. They're not emailing those things. Yeah, I try not to, uh, yeah, anyway. Someone might say, oh, but on your website you've got Twitter and that. What's well, part of the thing that they do that? They've got these, these social things. So why not use it? St. Paul used worldly things to help to get the message across. So I've got email, Twitter, whatever it's called, and, and that Facebook stuff. So hopefully if someone, say, sends one of my talks via the Twitter or via the Facebook and they hear it, like this one, and they hear all about the Facebook, well, that's good. Either they delete it or they're going to do something about it. And a lot of people might do something about it, so we can't put everyone down about it. So Saint Simeon was a 6th century saint who was born in Syria. Simeon made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and having prayed for three days in the holy places, he left for Emesa, a town in Syria, having decided to pretend to be foolish. His whole purpose was to save souls, either through ridiculous behaviour and calculated pretenses or by miracles that he worked in offering himself to mockery and contempt or by the teaching and prophetic words that he spoke while pretending foolishness. So he used to do things like, which had like messages to help people, miracles, but to protect himself, he acted foolish. In all this, he strove to remain hidden and unknown to men, to people in order to flee their praise and honour, living in the world as though in the desert. This is the first fool for Christ, by the way. I think it's said to be the first fool for Christ in the church. He made his entrance into the town dragging on a rope tied to his belt a dead dog, which he had found on a pile of manure and pursued by a gang of school children. They were mucking him, making fun of him. And when the saints would do, they had messages like what was, I don't know what the message of the dog was, but there was always things behind what they were doing. Like St. Theophil, a Russian saint, a fool for Christ in uh, the monastery of, what was that monastery? A Russian monastery, hmm? Kiev, was it or something? Oh, no, I forgot, I forgot now anyway. So what happened was he was a fool for Christ. So he was serving liturgy with the other priests on, on, a, on a feast day. So as you know, the abbot stands in front of the altar and all the priests of the monasteries are around it. So, you know, it depends how many. He was a priest as well, so he was standing around. So during the service, he went up to the altar, got the, uh, the Russians had got the nice vestments over the altar. So he got the vestment and wiped his nose on the vestment of the altar. And the priests were disgusted that he did that. And by looking at it, yes, you would say that's very bad what he did. But there was a message in it, and the priest couldn't work it out. But then the person who wrote the life explained it. And the message was that they were disgusted with him wiping his nose on the vestment 
but they weren't disgusted that while they were standing in front of the, in the altar, they had bad thoughts. Like dirty thoughts, evil thoughts, jealous thoughts, pride thoughts, etc. Which is worse. What's worse? Blowing your nose on the altar or that? So he didn't do it as a disrespect to the holies, but he did it as a way to teach them. So they all had men. So the dog, I don't know what the meaning was. The next day, being a Sunday, he went into the church and began to put out the candles throwing nuts on the flames. When they tried to chase him out, he started throwing nuts at the women. And I got a feeling that the women one was because of the way they were dressed and you know and things like that. They were dressed like, you know, like um, showing off about their... Uh. Simeon then entered the service of an innkeeper, someone who takes care of a tavern, who showed himself cruel and pitiless towards the saint, although the saint's foolishness gave him more trade. For some reason, by the saint working there, he um, brought more business. Just like St. Xenia of Petersburg, people would say, I'll come into my taxi, not the horse and cart. And if she would go into the carriage, that person would have the most business that day. Or if she walked into a shop, then that shop would have the most business. So one day he punished Simeon harshly for having broken a pint jug of wine. But after the tavern keeper himself saw a snake had released its venom in the wine, his attitude changed towards the saint. So the saint smashed the wine glass, whatever it was, glass, and the person got upset. But he didn't say why he smashed it, but the reason why he smashed it because it had poison in it from the snake. But he didn't say anything because he wanted the innkeeper to bash him and to ridicule him and things like that. When the innkeeper found out, oh, you know, he saved us, from that time he was looked on as a saint by his patron, by that innkeeper. Simeon pretended to want to dishonour the merchant's wife and, alerted by his wife's cries, drove him away with blows. So the saint pretended that he was trying to molest the innkeeper's wife and she started screaming because she thought it was true and the innkeeper came in and bashed him and threw him out. The man of God lived right in the town indifferent to the care of his body and without displaying modesty. He would relieve himself in the street. In other words, he would urinate publicly. He would go in naked into part of the public baths reserved for women, because they had public baths in the Byzantine time, and he would walk in into the woman's part. His clothes wrapped around his head, dancing with actresses whose hands he held or playing with prostitutes without feeling the slightest sexual passion and keeping his spirit calmly occupied with the work of God. The extent of what he did. Why did he do that? He used this trick where he would muck around with the prostitutes, etc., to make the acquaintance of these loose women and then secretly he would give them large amounts of money so they can stop doing what they were doing. But the people didn't know that and thought, he's going with prostitutes, he's trying to molest people's wives, he's dirty, he does those things in the street, etc. There was another life of one person who the town noticed that every night he would go to different prostitutes in the town and spend the whole night with them. 
and they hated him, they put him down, dirty person, dirty monk, whatever they would say. And later on they found out, after he died I think, that what he did was he would go in the room and then he would tell the prostitute, here's your money for the whole night, I want you to sleep. So she would go to the bed, sleep, and he would pray for her. And he converted a lot of prostitutes away from that life. So the church is not black and white, but what do we learn from this? To avoid the praise of people. People don't have to go and do these things. We could not do these things. You do not go and muck around with the opposite sex or the same sex if you have those problems. You don't do that. He was passionless. You don't urinate in the streets. He did on purpose. I'll tell you a quick story. Someone rang me up from somewhere in Europe, a monastery, and they had a person that was living there, but he was a lay person. Some people thought he was a saint, and others thought he can't be a saint because he would publicly urinate the same type of thing, and he used to say crazy things. So when you spoke to him, he would just start saying stupid things. They were really stupid. Anyway, so one day I was on the phone with this person, and who came in? That person came in. And I said to him, ask him these questions. So he was on the phone, and he said to him, what do you do when you have, and I can't remember the question, what do you do when you have um, pride or something? He was going, eh, bah, 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 saying silly things. I said to him, say it again. I'm asking you, what do you do when you have prideful thoughts? And then he said something else, which is stupid. But then when I thought about it, I go, that's not stupid what he's saying. He's actually telling you the answer, but he's saying it in a stupid way. Sounds stupid, but he's actually telling you the answer. That is very deep what he answered. And then he asked him some other question about himself, about his personal life, that this person that I was talking to, and then the person who wouldn't answer was saying all silly things, and he says, look, I'm asking you, and you're not telling me, and my soul could be lost because you're not telling me. And then he answered him with a deep answer that you get from the saints. So to me, he was not what they thought. He was saintly. He wasn't even a monk, he was a lay person. But he lived a lot of years in the monastery as a, just living there. And a lot of the monks of that monastery said he's crazy. They didn't even see that he is spiritual. And when people would come from different areas to visit him, the monks would say, oh, look at them stupid people, can't they see that he's crazy? And yet, like Isadora, where the saints said, no, she's not crazy, you're crazy. That was amazing. I can't remember the exact answers, uh, but I know that especially when he said, I'm going to lose my soul if you don't tell me, he just changed and then he gave an answer directly and it was all to do with humility, humility, humble-mindedness. And, you know, people don't speak about those things unless they're holy. 
I mean, I'm speaking about. It doesn't mean I'm holy, but I've got to, uh, as a priest, I've got to tell you these things. But this person was spiritual. These are all ancient saints. We need to go to our times a bit to see: is this the same way that the saints today think? I found a book called On the Upbringing of Children by Bishop Irenaeus of Ekaterinburg, I think, published by St. Xenia Skeet. I think it's a Skeet in California. 1904 that saint lived, so about 100 years ago. And he said, Bishop Irenaeus says, the child should be diligent, reverent, devout, not just because he is praised for being so, but because God asks it. So that's, that's very deep too, where he says, a child should be spiritual, should be pious, devout, not so that he can be praised, but you say to the child, you do that because that's what God wants. Like I said before, earlier on, you don't say to the child, mummy wants you to pray and should be happy with you. No, mummy wants you to pray so that you can be closer to God. That's what God wants. And... He says, as the child grows older, he must come to understand that he should do good from a feeling of necessity and for the sake of God and not only to enjoy the praise of men, meaning people. Do it because this is what God wants. Let him learn to avoid evil and sin because God forbids it and not from fear of disapproval or punishment from you, meaning the parents. So that's what I try to tell parents, that when you're disciplining your children, say, for example, they're going into a tantrum, the, the older ones a bit, you know, not the ones that are two years old, a bit young, but when they get a bit older and understand, five, six, seven, depends on each child's level, and you say to the child, what you're doing is wrong and that's no good, and God doesn't like proud people. That's not good what you're doing. And then you remind them of the example of Adam and Eve that fell from paradise because of pride. And the devil that fell and lost his gift of being an angel and became a dark demon because of pride. Simple. Not because you're going to bash them or hit them or punish them or make them lose privileges and things like that. Parents, be careful that you yourselves don't instill in your children arrogance, high-mindedness, self-praise, excessive ambition or boasting. Be careful that you're not doing that. Don't allow them to discuss matters which they don't understand and don't praise them excessively when they behave well. Sometimes parents allow children to talk about things that they know nothing about, and you should sell them so you don't know about those things. Or if they ask you a question which is beyond them, you just say, like parents say, what do I say if the child asks me a question about something? Let's just say an eight-year-old or a seven-year-old or a ten-year-old. Say, oh, um, mummy, how do, chew, how do babies become? And you say to them, um, that's God's gift, but you're young still. When you get older, I'll explain it. Full stop. You don't have to tell them. It's not compulsory. You don't have to tell children everything. They shouldn't discuss everything to make them proud as if they're knowing something. Some children will go, yap, 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 yap. They don't even know what they're talking about. And then parents are there smiling and laughing. And the kids say, oh, that's good. My parents are approving of what I'm doing. 
even now what I'm doing is that I'm speaking like an idiot. And I don't understand what I'm talking about, but they seem to like it, so I'll just continue doing it. This is wrong. Don't allow them to discuss matters which they don't understand and don't praise them excessively when they behave well, excessively. So he's saying you can praise them maybe a little bit, but he's saying not excessively. A loving glance, a smile of satisfaction, a few warm but restrained words should be enough to reward a small child when he does his duty. A loving glance, so you look at the child in a loving way. A smile of satisfaction, you can smile to show that that's good. And a few warm but restrained words. What does restrained mean? A few. You know, you might say to the child, that's correct what you did. But restrained means not to go overboard and go, oh, good, excellent, fantastic, high five, give me this, give me that. It's just too much. And that's enough for a child. That's what this bishop is saying, Bishop Eden else in that book. I haven't read all the book. I only read one chapter. But that chapter that I read on ego and all that, I thought it was very good. Now, let's look at St. Nikolai. St. Nikolai wrote his book on the prologue about 100 years ago. So close to our times. And let's see what he says. He says, on August the 28th, uh, for consideration, a true Christian... So who's he talking to, by the way? St. Nikolai wrote his prologue, who for? For monks, for nuns, for people in the world. So when he's speaking, he's not referring to monastics. He's referring to people who live in the world. A true Christian, didn't say a true monastic, a true Christian avoids the praise of men. And not only avoids it, but has a true fear of it. So we look at ourselves and say, do we avoid the praise of men? Do we fear praise? When we say men, we mean humans, you know, all, all people. Because I've got to be careful because the feminists, they say, why men? So I've got to say, a, a true Christian avoids the praise of people. And not only avoids it, but has a true fear of it. St. Sava of Psovk, is that how you say it? Pskov. Left the position of abbot and the monastery itself and the good brotherhood of the monastery, fleeing to a desolate place to escape the praise of men. For the love of praise robs our hearts. So, Nicol St. Nikolai is using a story, an ancient story, and putting it into context for people that was living in his times just a hundred years ago, and said. Avoid praise, you should fear it. And then gives an example of this saint who was a monastic, but just gave an example that he, to avoid the praise of men, ran away from the monastery because they wanted to make him abbot. Then he goes on to another example. A devout prince, upon hearing of the ascesis, the spiritual life of Saint Moses the Black, he was an Ethiopian, took his entourage into the desert to see him. Entourage is like the president or the prime minister, when they travel, they've got all these people to travel with them. Uh, Moses learned that the prince was coming to his monastery and quickly ran to hide somewhere, but he unexpectedly encountered the high-ranking visitors. Where is the cell of Ava Moses? The servants of the prince asked, not suspecting that this was Moses himself. Moses opened his mouth and said, What do you want? 
him for. He is an ignorant old man, very untruthful and completely impure in life. Hearing this, the visitors were astonished and continued on. When they arrived at his cell, they asked for the elder, not knowing it was him. So they arrived where the other monks were and asked, we want to see Elder Moses. But the monk said he was not there. The visitors told them what the monk on the road had said. The monks were greatly saddened and scandalised that someone would say such a thing about their elder. And they said to the prince, what did this old man look like who spoke such slanderous words about the holy man? The visitors answered that he was very dark-skinned, tall, and dressed miserably. And the monks cried out loudly, but that was Abba Moses himself. The incident was of great spiritual benefit to the prince. He returned home rejoicing. Another example that Saint Nikolai is using, which is what I do, we can use the ancient saints not to do exactly what they did, but to learn from that. And Saint Nikolai's his message for these two examples of Saint Sava or Pskov, whatever, and Saint Moses the Black, the example is avoid praise and fear it, for the love of praise robs our hearts. And when he says robs our heart, it means robs our heart of what? Of God. That can't be said that's ancient saints that applies. That is 100 years ago. But we should read a few more just in case. Another one, Prologue 24, February. Those who do everything for us according to our will are neither our good teachers nor our good friends. St. John Moscus writes about one eminent woman of senatorial family who visited the Holy Land. Arriving at Caesarea, she planned to remain there and applied to the bishop with this request. So she decided to become a nun in the Holy Land. So she said to the bishop, I want to stay here. And she said, find me a young woman to teach me the fear of God. The bishop introduced her to a humble girl. After some time, the bishop met this woman and asked her, how is the girl that I introduced to you? And then the woman answered, she's all right, but she has been of little help to my soul because she lets me have my own way. It is because she is humble, but I need her to grumble at me and not to let me do as I please. The bishop found her someone else, a girl with a fairly rough character who grumbled at her told her off in other words. And this one that he found used to call her an ignorant rich woman because she used to be rich, the woman, and so forth. Sometime later, the bishop asked again the woman, and how does this young woman get on with you? She's truly helpful to my soul, replied the woman of senatorial family. And she thus became very humble. So, Saint Nikolai writing to people in the world is saying that when we get our way all the time, especially children, and when we're not told our faults, etc., that's not good. And we see that you go to work, say, and then there's someone there, there's usually some person that's a bit horrid, terrible character, doesn't say good morning, rough, rude and people come home and they get upset 
And then you try to say to them, well, you know, I had that too when I used to teach. There was some teachers that were, used to say hello to them and they wouldn't even answer. One woman who was there for years, as she thought she was like King Kong, I said to her good morning and she ignored me. And I got bothered, my ego, I really got bothered. I went up to her and it was lunchtime and I gave her a piece of paper with some lames that can you check this and tell me if any of your children in your class are misbehaving because I was like a year patron for a short while. And she was there cutting her onions because they were having a science barbecue. So she was cutting onions. And she looked up and she goes, I'm busy. Really rude. And my heart jumped. Now, why did my heart jump? Pride. I was vexed. And I said to her, you know what? I know you walk around because you've been here for years and you think that, you know, you're the best. But I don't respect you. To me, you're nothing. And I walked out. Now, that was all ego. And that's not good. But that was years ago. And sometimes I still feel the urge. Like I rang up someone the other day for someone and rang up. And it's like you were talking to someone that was on the verge of death. And I just felt, I'll ring her up and just say to this woman, sorry, but your phone manner is horrible. But I didn't do that. These are the things. That's why God gives us these lessons so we can learn. And some will say, oh, that means that you've got ego. Of course I do. I've everyone, I mean, the, if the saints were in monasteries and they for years and years and years had to fight with their egos, what's going to happen to little old me? Of course I'm going to be fighting it. So we all have to fight it. That's why these stories are good. And see, look at that. She wanted to be abused. I don't want to be abused, but when I am, I get upset. So uh, that's what we learn. And one more from the consideration of St. Nikolai, July 8th. St. Anthony, the great teachers, be fearful of becoming famous for anything that you may do. If men begin to praise you for your deeds, do not rejoice at it or find sweetness therein. Keep your deeds as secret as possible and do not allow anyone to speak about them. How much more peace and joy would there be among men on earth if even half of the world would take these words to heart. So Saint Nikolai is quoting Saint Anthony. And we now know from reading other of Saint Nikolai's works that we just read, that we use the ancient saints to learn things. Doesn't mean that we're gonna go and live in the desert like Saint Anthony did. Doesn't mean that we're gonna go into cemeteries like saints did to fight the demons that are a lot of times present in cemeteries. That's what they used to do. Some of them used to go there and sleep in the cemetery so that they can be attacked by demons and then they can learn humility to trust in God, etc. That's not what these lives are meant for. See, if you feel sweetness from being praised, that's no good. It doesn't say to go and live in the desert and keep your deeds secret. The thing with all of us is that when we do something good, we want to advertise it. I gave the other day $200 to the Red Cross, some say. Or I bought a bunch of spiritual books and gave them to the priest to hand them out. That's good, the Red Cross, it's good. 
the given spiritual books out is good, but why do we have to say it? And that's what we learn. Not to go and take off our clothes and do all these things that the saints did, or wear rags on our heads and go to work, like Saint Isadora. Let's look at something close to us, Elder Joseph the Hesychist. One day, it says in his life, one day Papa Ananias, when they say Papa, it means priest. One day Papa Ananias said to Elder Joseph, Elder, is there anyone else in the entire holy mountain of Manathos who mindfully and seriously practices the Jesus prayer at a very, very high level? And then Papa Ananias answers and says, I doubt it, you are the only one, Elder. Elder Joseph was momentarily enticed by his compliment and he looked as if he were in a daze, Elder Joseph. He was like smashed, in other words. That's why he was in a daze. But a second later, he regained his senses and exclaimed, Get behind me, Satan! And punched himself on the thigh with all his might and said, Forgive me, my God. Now, when he says, get behind me, Satan, he's not calling Papa Ananias Satan. Get behind me, Satan, is what Christ said when the devil was trying to tempt him in the desert. So what that means is that it was the devil who tempted Papa Ananias to praise him. And that happens. Like someone says a praise to us, a lot of times the devil tempted that person to say it. Or someone puts us down. Again, the devil does that to bother you. So we've got to understand that behind people, when they're doing wrong things, the demons are playing their games. As a penance, God allowed the elder to be sleepy the following night that he slept right through his vigil until late in the morning. So blessed Joseph, if you read his life, he had a practice of doing what's called vigil. So from a certain time, he would wake up very early in the morning, I don't know, two, two o'clock, I, I can't remember. He would drink coffee so that he can stay awake. And then he would do his prayer rule. And that, I think, used to take him quite a few hours. And one of the biggest temptations that these ascetics have is to stay awake. After he was praised... That day, he fell asleep during his vigil, which for a monk of that type, it's serious. And he realised he lost grace because he was praised. So what he did was, instead of working that day, he did his prayer rule to make up for neglecting it. After experiencing how easy it is to accept vainglorious thoughts and seeing how much damage they do, he later wrote to someone... You know, he used to write letters to people and he said, be careful not to compliment one another in each other's presence. For if compliments harm the perfect, how much more harmful will they be to you who are still weak? In other words, if praises can harm someone who's progressed spiritually, someone who's acquired the Jesus prayer where it happens in their heart by itself, they're full of grace, and one compliment was enough to smash him down, how much more for us, in other words, who are weak, who are still weak, when we get praised? 
That's what it means. It doesn't mean get up at 2 o'clock. It doesn't mean this. doesn't mean that. It's just simple. And when you miss your prayer rules, as some of you do, we all have problems like that at times, some people write it down. Okay, I missed that. Day. I missed this. I missed that. And they have lists of the things they've got to catch up. And I used to do that too. You say, oh, I've got to catch up. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I feel guilty. This and And at the end, you go crazy. So I read once an elder who spoke about that and he said, just leave it. Just repent. You didn't do the right thing. Struggle and do it the next day. Don't do these catch-ups too much because it makes you crazy. Father Seraphim Rose's childhood. Now, we know that Father Seraphim died about 1980-something. He was uh, in the Russian church abroad. He was a Protestant that became Orthodox. And I believe he's a saint. And a lot of people do believe he's a saint, but he hasn't been canonised. His books have been read all over the world now. His mother, Esther, having a decisive, strong-willed personality, was the unchallenged ruler of the household. She was the head. She had to be on top of all that was happening. Nothing was hidden from her. And to make sure of this, she dug through her children's drawers and read their letters and papers. Now, people say that's very bad. But you know what I've noticed now? That even a lot of experts are saying you should know what your children are doing on the internet and things like that. You don't know who they're speaking to. You should monitor. Some parents are dopey. They don't do it and they just trust their kids. Other parents are scared to be told off. It's a whole tragedy there, but that's another topic which we've got to go into one day. But anyway, that's what she did. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that's what she did. She used to go through the drawers and read their letters and papers. A strict disciplinarian. She was very demanding of her children. She expected them to be perfect and seldom, if ever, gave praise. She was from a generation of parents who felt that it is not good to compliment children too much in case they become proud, which is what I said before. Even in America, she was a Protestant, even in America, before they had that. I think he was born in the 1930s, I think. Now, it doesn't mean she's a saint. She's not orthodox. And disciplinarian, we read in the previous talks, is not good. There's authoritarian and there's authoritative and I think the authoritative is better with a person's firm but loving and kind and authoritarian is where a person's too strict and all that anyway so the authoritative is closer to orthodox churches teaching on the upbringing of children she was from a generation of parents I like that who felt that it was not good to compliment children too much in case they become proud People don't think of that now. But although she would not praise them to their faces, she would rave about them to her friends and relatives when they were not present. Above all, she would brag about him, meaning Father Seraphim Rose. That proves the point what I said before, that praise like this didn't exist. But let me tell you something. My opinion. I think that the fact that he wasn't praised when he was young helped him to become a saint. Not canonized saint, but he was very, very spiritually progressed. 
He was always talking about humility, humility, humility. What I've noticed is that children that were praised a lot when they were young, when they come to the church, you can't do much with them. Sorry, but that's what I've noticed. You can't do much with them. I've tried to help people with this pride. One boy, his mother used to go, you're beautiful, you're handsome, you're smart. He must have been brainwashed from very young. And I tried to help him for 10 years or more. And what happened? Still loves praise. He loved it. It was like a drug for him. And as much as I tried in all my ways to teach him humility, to help him to learn humility, dead cause. That's my opinion, but we'll see what the saints say. Actually, what else have I noticed about these kids that were praised a lot when they were young? They got no empathy and feel. You can't tell them their faults. You can't correct them. Whatever. Sometimes they used to say to me, oh, you're, when you tell me my faults, you say it to me harshly. Which, because I am, I'm a little bit like that. And so what I would do on purpose, I would point out to them something and I would say it so sweet that you would think that I was an apple pie with cream. That's so sweet. And I say, you know what I've noticed? I've noticed this and that. Wow, they just explode. So as my bishop said when I was ordained in Serbia uh, years ago, he actually said, doesn't matter how you say it, the truth always hurts. And I add in brackets to his comment, when you're a negatist. So when you come back from your hydration break, we're going to do what St. Paisius teaches because he's close to us. Okay, Father Seraphim, you know, that's when he was very years ago. St. Nicolai, he lived 100 years ago. Now we're coming close. And let's see what St. Paisius says about this tropic of praise. And then after that, we're going to go into what St. Porfirio says about it. And I think that will be the cherry on the cake. Then you'll understand what the topic's about. Okay, so have the break just quickly. St. Paisios. Many times, even serious people praise me, and this just makes me feel sick. See how the saints feel when they're praised? If we feel a little bit sick or we don't like it, that's a good sign. But if we like it, that's a bad sign. So many times, even serious people, meaning spiritual people, praise me. And this just makes me feel sick. I laugh inside and merely dismiss their words. So he laughs to himself. He gave me advice when I went years ago. So I went to the elder and I said to him that I have a problem. If someone says something, I react. I react quickly and I get angry, I get upset. And he said, make a joke, laugh. So it's a way to kind of combat that impulse to tell someone off or to get upset. Like, for example, I've learnt one now. It's a good mechanism. So if someone says something, which is silly, I just might say, 
Poor thing. That's it. Poor thing. So you make a joke. Or wow. Wow, that's a doozy. Instead of getting upset and getting angry. So you've got to learn ways. That, that's what he's saying here. So what he does was, um, not that they were telling him off, but they were, which is, he probably does the same there too, but this one was praise. And so he would laugh inside and then dismiss the words. You too should dismiss such words of praise at once. They are useless. What do we gain if others are admiring us? Is it that the little devils will admire us in the future? Whoever rejoices when others admire him is being mocked by the demons. Now, this is not something that was written three, four, five hundred years ago. Something that's ancient, something that might not apply to us. This was said by someone who lived in our times. And whoever rejoices when others admire him is being mocked by demons. And if you remember, the first thing that I read to you from the the Evergetinos, which was the ancient desert saints, you're going to go, that sounds really extreme. And um, ah, an elder said, he who praises a monk hands him over to Satan. That was said 1,700 years ago. Elder Paisius just lived now recently. And he says, whoever rejoices when others admire him is being mocked by the demons. The demons want people to praise us. They love it. They rejoice in it. Why? We're going to find out. Let's go to another part, Elder Paisius. You ready for it? Praise is like a drug. Remember the secular, what I read before, when it said that they become praise junkies, when the doctor said that he believes that those who are praised continually become praise junkies, drug addicts. Now, you might think, oh, did Elder Paisius read that? No. Didn't have to read them. Praise is like a drug. And you can see those people who are into the Facebooks, into these attention things and all that type of stuff. Even women who dress continually. Some men do it, but it's mostly women that dress in ways where they, as St. John Christum says, they're doing it to attract the attention mostly of men. They want men to look at them. It's a drug. That's why it's very hard for them to stop the makeup, etc. If you rejoice and feel happy when praised, and if you worry and pull a long face when criticized or told that a task you have completed was not done well, know that this is a worldly condition. Both the sadness and the joy are worldly. He's saying, if you are happy when they praise you and you get upset when you're criticize this is not spiritual if you tell one who has spiritual health you did not do this well he will rejoice because you helped him see his mistake now when i just read that my my heart dropped because rarely do i come across someone 
who you can correct without them getting upset. It's true. A spiritual person wants to hear their mistake. So, for example, I see a mother or a father and they're doing something wrong with the child, something which is going to affect that child now and in the future. And you tell them, be careful of that, in a nice way, especially when I don't know someone. I'm always careful, softly, nice. You know, people that know me, I'm a little bit different. So I'm speaking to you in a certain way now because I know you. If those people here that were new and not know, and I'll speak differently because I've got to be careful that they don't get knocked out. You know that I'm not trying to offend you. They might think I'm trying to offend them. So you've got to be careful. Anyway, so you say it nicely. What you're doing with the child, you've got to be careful because the child will grow up and whatever. And they get vexed. They get upset. And I say to myself, why would they get upset when you're telling them something that could save that child of becoming a monster or demonic or something. Why would they do that? So even something that's to their benefit, they don't even want to take because of their ego. It's just really bad. The spiritual person truly believes that he did not do his best, so God enlightens him to do it very well the next time. But even his improvement, he ascribes to God, he says to himself, what could I have accomplished alone without God's help? I would have done nothing but garbage. In other words, he puts everything into proper order because he has spiritual health. When we hear someone say something, say a woman hears her husband say something about her, or the husband hears something about him. Because remember I said before that when there's a couple, God enlightens each partner to help the other partner. It's like a mystery. Just like when you go to confession, it's a mystery. A lot of times the priest will tell you things. It's enlightenment, etc. The same as a married couple. God enlightens the man to tell the wife and sometimes the wife to tell the man. But even there, blow-ups. Can't say anything. And this leads to the children getting upset because of the fights. There's no love, there's friction, divorces, separations. And a lot of it is because of egotism. But a spiritual person will say, okay, thank you, I'll work on that. Or I don't see what you're saying, but I'll think about it, I'll pray about it. But instead, they reject straight away, like automatic. It's like so automatic. So if I say something to someone, I say, um, I've noticed this, this, and this. Straight away. It's like the phone. Sometimes it's like there's this energy coming from the phone and my hair goes backwards. It's that bad. Like it can't, they can't listen. I said, well, if you don't see it, they go, I don't see that. That's okay. I, don't, I understand that. If you don't see it, then why don't you... Take it away and think about it. Straight away. That's when you just... Some people I do, I hang up. If, if I know them well, I'll hang up on them. So a spiritual person will listen. A demonic person won't listen. Oh, that's my opinion, demonic. But we'll have to see what the saints say. Elder... 
How can we come to feel one and the same way, both when people praise us and when they insult us? And the answer, when you despise worldly recognition, then you will accept both praise and insult as one and the same thing. In other words, if someone insults us or if someone praises us, we should not get upset one way and not to be happy with the praise. We can look at it spiritually. If they praise us and it's true, we can say, with God's help, that happened. God helped me. Like one mother was praised once. They said, oh, you've got such well-behaved children. And she counteracted and said, well, with God's help, you see? And if they insult us, then we should listen and say, maybe they've got a point there. Maybe there's something there. So when someone says something bad to me, I don't reject it. I've got to go away. I've got to think about it. I've got to pray about it to make sure that what's being said, if I'm bothered by what's said, usually it's true. That's the rule. If someone tells you something, you go bang, bang, bang in your heart, usually it's true what they're saying. Now, if you don't get upset, go away, think about it, usually it might not be correct. But that doesn't mean that you've got to not like the other person or whatever. So, the next quote, it says, St. Paisus said that the children who are hurt the most are the ones whose parents did not realise the harm that they do to them by the admiration and praise they show them. And even said the children that are hurt the most. That's a bit funny. I thought it was when they see their parents fighting or when parents pressure them or when the parents hit them or when the parents reprimand them too much. But he's saying the children who are hurt the most, hurt spiritually meaning, not hurt their feelings, but the ones that are damaged the most, are the ones whose parents do not realise the harm they do to them by the admiration and praise they show them. Quote, this is a, that was just a, a paraphrase, but this is the exact quote. Instead of respect, instead of children respecting their parents and others, they are full of egoism and nerves. They will take no advice, no discipline of any kind. They won't listen to advice. You can't discipline them. And they're full of nerves, meaning that agitated and anxieties and all that. And because they're full of egoism. And where they get the egoism from? Well, the first one's from the childhood. Then it continued on in school and TV, etc. That's that on Elder Paisos. There's other stuff, but we'll do it in the next talk where he really, really talks about ego, egoism in such a way that I was shocked when I read it. Now we're going to go to St. Porphyrios's book, the book that they've made, Wounded by Love. There's a section on the upbringing of children. Children are not edified by constant praise. This is the cherry now. This will explain. Already Elder Paisios did, but it wasn't much. But Elder Porphyrios, we have detail on this topic. Let's start. I'm going to go a little bit quicker because I want to run out of time. The medicine and great secret for children's progress is humility. The medicine and to help them progress, it must be based on humility. 
not on what they're going to get in their exams, in other words. That's my addition. Trust in God gives security. He uses that a lot. If you remember the previous talks, he used to use things like security and certainty. He used to say those things. If you show love to your children, etc., they will acquire security and certainty. And the certainty, I think, means stability, confidence, not having the fear, things like that. So he often says that. God is everything. No one can say that I am everything. That cultivates egotism. God desires us to lead children to humility. God desires us to lead children to humility. Unknown to a lot of parents. I thought it was to make them good kids, to do well at school, to come first, etc., all these silly things that are not the first priority. And when I try to help children, sorry, parents, which are like children, cultivate humility, humility. It's like you speak another language. Let's go on to the saint. Without humility, neither we nor children will achieve anything. You need to be careful when you encourage children. You shouldn't say to a child, you'll succeed, you're great, you're young, you're fearless, you're perfect. It's interesting. Did he read those books that we read before? Exactly the same. He's saying don't do that. Let's see if he says about the effort. But remember the, the psychologists say the new theory is don't praise the child but to praise the effort. But anyway, he's saying you shouldn't say to a child, you'll succeed, you're so great, you're, you're this, you're whatever. This is not good for the child. You can tell the child to pray and say, the talents you have, my child, have been given to you by God. Pray and God will give you strength to cultivate them. And in that way, you will succeed. God will give you his grace. That's what you should tell children. Listen to this. This is different, similar to the psychologist, but not fully. See, God will give you the strength to cultivate. That means to put in effort to develop, to get better. But the gifts you have are from God. The psychologists don't say that. There is a difference there, but he is emphasizing to cultivate. So when you have a garden, you don't just throw the seeds and they're going to grow. You've got to cultivate, you've got to dig, you've got to put effort in, dig it up, put manure, etc. And the same as what you tell the children, that you've got these gifts, whatever you've got, they're from God. Everyone's got gifts. But you've got to put in your effort with God's help to improve. This is the best way. Children should learn to seek God's help in everything. Last talk, I read to you about how helicopter parents are bad and that the psychologist was saying, you've got to make them independent. You've got to make them uh, succeed with their effort, etc. And I said, and I just put a little comment on top of that. What happened to God's help? 
I just made that comment. And now we read that that is important to tell children what they've got is from God and that they should ask him to help them to improve what they've got. There was two types of mindset. What was the first one? The first one was fixed mindset. And the second one? Growth mindset. So in a way, not fully the same, but something there that you can improve, but with God's help and your effort. Praise is harmful to children. What does scripture say? This is St. Porfirio speaking. Oh, my people, those who call you blessed lead you astray and pervert the path of your feet. Isaiah chapter 3, line 12. In other words, he explains it. The person who praises us leads us astray and perverts the path of our life. That's what prophet Isaiah meant. In other words, those who praise us destroy us. How wise God's words are, says St. Porphyrios. Praise does not prepare children for any difficulties in life and they grow up badly adjusted. They lose their way and in the end they become failures. Now the world has gone haywire. Little children are constantly being praised. But this is the ancient saint. No, it's not. It's modern, modern now. And St. Prophet only died a few years ago. He's speaking now. But that's for monastics. But it's not for monastics. He's speaking to people in the world. See how people try to justify? And they speak fast. That means they're getting agitated. Which, by the way, is one of the symptoms of schizophrenia. They talk fast and that don't make sense. But they're sick, some of those, obviously. But this is where you've got people that haven't got schizophrenia, but they act like schizophrenics. Like they start going and start justifying, no, that's for, that's for monastics, that's for this, that's for that. I was reading a book just before the talk last night. I like to read before, I, before going to sleep. Always should read spiritual books before you go to bed because that helps you have a better sleep and brings the grace. So it was a book on children and the church. So I just... Started to read it. It was an um, orthodox book. A woman who talks about things, you know, mixes it with psychology, etc. I'm always careful when I read books written by academics who are orthodox. But St. Eustin Popovich was an, an academic. St. Nicola was an ac- academic. St. Nectarius was an academic, yes, and spiritual. St. John was an academic but spiritual. When you have just academic and not much spiritual, then something's not going to be right. So as I opened it, I just came across one part which said, the ancient church never had much instruction for parents about the upbringing of children. They mostly centered on reprimanding the parents for not bringing their children to church and going to church, etc. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's what she's saying. And then she said that the ancient church had a negative thing towards parents and all that. And says, for example, like when a woman who has given birth cannot go to church 
for six weeks, 40 days. I don't understand this. She was bothered. I don't understand this. I closed the book in the drawer. She's going against the Holy Fathers because she's intellectual, she's educated. She knows more than them. So the Holy Fathers that were inspired by God, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's what they said. I don't understand this. I'm sorry, madam, whatever you are, it doesn't mean that because you don't understand it that there's no significance to it. There's a lot of things we don't understand. So many things. If a woman rolls over while she's asleep and kills her child, it's counted like one-year penance or something. Now, obviously, they don't get that much now, but they looked at it as being bad. I don't understand that. She didn't say that. I'm just saying what other people say. I don't understand that. Something's not right. And then you read the father's explanation for that to have happened, something, a loss of grace occurred such that that accident occurred. There's some guilt to that person that that happened. But no, we don't want that because the modern psychologists, all these people say now, no fault for the person. We don't have to have accountability. Whatever you do is okay. That's the new theory now. And it's infiltrating into the church. So a woman has a miscarriage. You say, oh, it's okay. In one case of a woman, she had a miscarriage. Then she went to some priest overseas. And then she said, because I wrote to her, I said, well, you've got to not commune for a while, and is that, but you've got to get read. There's a special prayer if you have a miscarriage. So she went to the priest, and then the priest said to her, Ah, oh, no, that's, that's, no, no, you can commune. So she just had a miscarriage, and a few days later, he allowed her to commune. So then she went to an abbess and spoke to the abbess. And she said, no, 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 that, that's, that's not right. It doesn't mean she has to get the full penance of one year, but she has to understand that there's some guilt on her side. and make her to be careful for the next pregnancy. Not, I lost one, I'll try again. Oh, oops, I lost another one, like it's nothing. No guilt, no nothing. It's terrible. We are told not to scold children, says St. Porphyrios, not to go against their will and not to tell them what to do. Who to, it says, we are told, who by? Psychologists, educators, a lot of educators. You can't scold, you can't tell children what they're doing is wrong. You can't go against their will. You've got to let them do whatever they want. And you can't tell them what to do. The child learns to expect this, this type of thing, of being left free, etc., and is unable to deal maturely with even the slightest difficulty. That sounds like those articles that you can't tell these people that have been brought up in this self-esteem movement, you can't tell them anything. You've got to praise them all the time. So he's saying here, 
they can't cope with the slightest difficulty. So in the Wall Street Journal, they said they had to bring in these con consultants to tell the bosses how to praise their workers, because if not, they're going to have a mental breakdown. You know, boo-hoo, my, my boss, I made him a cup of tea and he didn't say congratulations to me. <laughs> they do, it's true. Now, if you look in America, some of you that watch American news, when that Donald Trump was elected, they thought that the other one's going to win, Hillary Clinton. They actually were 100% sure she was going to win. When she lost, these people in the campus, these students, these, these self-esteem people, they had breakdowns. They had on the video, when they heard that he won, no, and screaming, no, and they were crying. And they had to have, in the universities, they had lessons to stop. They were making the students cocoa. No, I'm telling you, they had to make them cocoa because they were so distressed that, that Hillary didn't win. They had people coming in, experts to come in, and they were doing crayon work to relax them, right? They didn't have to hand in assignments. They didn't have to attend lectures for a while to help them get over the Donald Trump one, and the other side, we're calling them snowflakes, meaning like a snowflake, it comes down and sometimes it melts before it even hits. So it comes down, it might fall here, and then it melts. Snowflakes. In other words, they can't take anything. These are the self-esteem kids. And look what he says here. The child learns to expect this, however, and is unable to deal maturely with even the slightest difficulty, it is defeated and drained of all strength. It's defeated and drained of all strength. Why? One, if you don't praise them. Two, if things don't go their way. Three, if you don't let them do what they want, whatever, uh, all those things. Uh, like, for example, their person didn't win the presidency and they had breakdowns. And that's what happens today in a lot of philosophy. That's why you notice with your own children. If they don't get their way, if something happens, they feel defeated and drained of all strength. That's what St. Paul says about those who are praised. And you can't tell them what to do, they need praise, uh, you have to let them be free. Now, St. Paul I read earlier on, I'm gonna read what he said about pressuring and overprotectiveness. I want to prove to you that if you pressure and overprotect children, that's, that's abuse, and if you praise children, it has similar effects. St. Perfidio says, when you are always standing over them, the children react. They become lethargic and weak-willed and generally are unsuccessful in life. This is a kind of overprotectiveness that leaves the children immature. Now, I'll read you the one about the praise, and let's compare the words. Drained. Drained. What did he say here? Lethargic. Uh, drained of all strength. Defeated. That's for the praise. 
They are unable to deal maturely with difficulties, even small difficulties. And what did he say about the overprotectiveness? This is a kind of overprotectiveness that leaves the children immature. Similar words, immature for overprotectiveness, immature for those who have been praised. Drained of all strength for praise, lethargic for overprotectiveness and pressuring. And weak-willed, well, obviously, if they're drained and they're defeated, they haven't got a will to pick themselves up. Sorry, but for mathematics, that's equal. The same language, the same reactions. Children who are praised uh, cannot be told their faults. You can't tell them what to do. You can't correct them and you have to leave them free. If you don't, then they are unable to deal maturely with even the slightest difficulty. They are defeated and drained of all strength. And those who are pressured and overprotected, which a lot of you would agree when you're always on the kid, it's an abuse. And it says that those children react, they become lethargic, which means lazy, apathetic, inactive, weak-willed, and generally unsuccessful in life, this is a kind of overprotectiveness that leaves the child, children immature. Same language. So, conclusion, logic. The conclusion is, whether you are overprotective and whether you are on your children continually and you're, and you're pressuring them, pushing them, that makes the children react in a negative way and when you praise them that makes them react in a certain way as well and both are the same. So I conclude for the time being that praising children is abusive because you are setting them up to suffer for the rest of their lives. And when a child goes into tantrums or an adult child, when a child gets old and goes into tantrums and is tormented and tortured, sorry, that person's suffering. The main responsibility for the failure of children in life lies with their parents and thereafter with their teachers. They praise them constantly. They fill them with egotistical words. They do not lead them to the spirit of God and they alienate them. In other words, they turn them away from the church. Very, very strong words that if you praise children, you make them leave the church. How is that? When the children grow up a little and go to school with this egotism, they abandon and disdain religion. When you teach children egotism, you make them hate religion. And they lose their respect for God, for their parents and for everyone. They become stubborn, hard and unfeeling like the narcissists in the you know they become stubborn, hard and unfeeling with no respect for religion or for God. We have produced a generation of egotists and not of Christians. And the same will be read in about the narcissistic the students in the universities, the ones that were brought up in the self-esteem movement. When it said they have no empathy, they have no feeling, and he's saying the same thing. The saints saying the same thing, that they are hard and unfeeling. 
from being praised too much. Children are not benefited by constant praise, says St. Porphyrios. They become self-centred and vain. All their lives, they will want everyone to be praising them constantly, even if they are being told lies. Even if they're being told lies, it's still, for them, it's still praise. So I had a fellow who came to me and the poor thing was deceived spiritually. He had this thing that he was holy. So as a joke to try and wake him up, I introduced him to some people there. I said, oh, look, he's so-and-so. Let's call him John. He's John. He's holy. Making fun of him. And he went, he, he was like acting like a little girl, like all bashful. In other words... He liked it. I said to him, I'm making fun of you. I'm trying to put a point across. You're not holy. He, it is all, all like that. But today we live in a, in a world of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Same as these um, vain books, or sorry, Facebooks. So they say, they write in their things like cooklers and all this stuff. Oh, you look stunning, you look this and you look that. And these people are taking it Maybe deep down they know it's not even true, but they don't care because they've got all these likes on their books. Is there likes on Facebook? Yeah, likes and, oh, look how many likes, thumbs up. Look how many I've got. I've got 300 likes, even though 299 of them are lies. I want to say that again. All their lives they will want everyone to be praising them constantly, even if they are being told lies. This is what happens when you praise children from young constantly. Unfortunately, says the saint, nowadays all people have learned to tell lies and the conceited, meaning the proud people, accept these lies as their daily sustenance. In other words, their daily bread. Like you need food to live. They need praise to live. Say it even if it's not true. Even if it's ironical, they say God does not want this. God wants truth. Unfortunately, not all people understand this and they do the very opposite. God wants truth. Tell your children the truth. So when they're older, and they're not just fantasising because they're young, when they're older and they're saying silly things which are, you know, say, no, that's not true. So what is meant by God wants truth? Is it meaning the dogmas of the church? Obviously, we have to keep the dogmas of the church. But this is my, my answer. The truth about ourselves. That's what God wants. Saint Nectarius, whose paraclesis we did today, in a talk that I did on him with the teachings, which is talk 52... He said, the teachings of St. Nectarius, he said, using the philosophers, the Greek philosophers that even understood it, even though they weren't Christian, the more you know yourself, the closer you become to God. That's what some pagans even worked out. The philosophers. The more you know about yourself, the closer you become to God. Saints 
know themselves. They knew themselves. And they're relaxed, peaceful. They're not all the time worried. Is someone going to find out the truth about me? Which makes you sick. It, it makes you physically sick as well to have that anxiety all the time. Now, the zealots, the modern-day zealots, who say that they're against ecumenism or they're against all these heresies, etc., they say that they keep the truth. Now, there's proper zealots who try to keep the truth of the dogmas and they're against ecumenism. And then there's zealots who do the same, but one extra thing. They have no interest in the truth about themselves. And that's why when they speak, they're fanatical. The saints knew themselves. They had a love of self-knowledge. These people don't. And that's why if you're going to keep the dogmas, keep them. But also you've got to love the truth. We have to love the dogmas. We have to love the truth and we have to be ready to die for the truth. But if you don't have the truth about yourself, then your supposed zeal is demonic. St. Porfirio says, when you praise children constantly and indiscriminately, in other words, without thinking, they fall victim to the temptation of the evil one. When you praise children constantly and without thinking, they fall victim to the temptation of the evil one. The devil sets the mill of egotism in motion. He uses an analogy of a factory, like, you know, a factory starts working and, you know, so he's saying that when you praise a child, you put into motion this thing of egotism. And accustomed as they are to praise from their parents and teachers, they make progress at school perhaps, but what is the gain? So some of them do progress maybe at school, but he says, what's the point in it? In life, they will be egotists and not Christians. When you praise a child constantly, you make them fall into the temptation of the devil, which is similar to what the ancient saints say. And even if some of them might progress at school, they're not Christians. And I read this next part and it explained my experience, which I will share with you. Egotists can never be Christians. If I had a whiteboard here, I would write that up. Egotists can never be Christians. In all my years that I've been dealing with people, I've been a priest now for 25, I don't know how many years, 26, something like that. Uh, 26. And what I noticed is that when I deal with people who can't accept their faults, um, they would bother me the most. That would really cause me pain. And I noticed with those people that if they ring or if they come to me and they go, your blessing, I wouldn't give it to them. Then I would walk away and go, why am I doing that? 
That's not good. As a priest, you should bless the person. But I just couldn't do it. It made me sick. I couldn't bless them. So a person comes up, puts their hands, and you bless them. I couldn't do it. Because if I did it, I'd get sick. I blame myself. And that's good when you blame yourself, because it means... See, when you do something and you say, I'm sure of what I'm doing, that's demonic. You've got no doubt. But when you do something you say, I don't know, that maybe it's bad. Maybe what I'm doing is wrong. That's humility. And wherever there's humility, there's God. So, my thing was, I found it difficult, and not only that, they would say to me, in fact, to make it worse so you can get more scandalised, they might say, happy feast day, Father, for today. My response. That was my response, nothing. I couldn't answer them. Then I'd say, I can't even say happy feast day back to them. What's going on? Why am I like this? So I blame myself. These were people, by the way, don't think that they're just people that are struggling. These are people who refused to admit their mistakes onto death, who would rather see their families destroyed than to admit their mistakes, who can't be told anything without reacting like a volcano, etc., etc. And I used to say to them, sorry, I don't feel for you properly because you lie, because you can't admit your mistakes. I used to say that all the time. After a while, I had to admit it to them. I said, look, I'm sorry, that's what it is. My conscience does not allow me to have that for you. Because, and I used to say to them, because you don't admit your mistakes and because you lie continually about yourself. So, for example, you say to them, you know, you try to help them say, your motivation there came from jealousy. That's why you spoke like that to that person. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Shut away. And give me, give me a headache. And you try to help them. And then I used to say something else to them. I used to say, don't throw the holies to the swine and the dogs because they'll tread on what you're saying, the holies, meaning just the words, and they'll rip you apart. That, some people think that means only for heretics. So when you're trying to help a heretic, like a Jehovah Witness, and you say Christ is God, and they say to you, no, he's not, because of and what Christ means is they tread on the pearls that you're saying, the pearl being the dogma that Christ is God. They tread on it, and then they rip you apart, not physically, but you lose grace. And I would say a lot to these people that, you know, I feel that when I speak to you and try to help you, I feel I lose grace. I feel something's wrong. And we finally got the answer. Egotists can never be Christians. And another thing I used to say is that they were demonic. And that used to make me feel guilty as well. And then, years later, I come across St. Paisios where he says, when you're speaking to an egotist, God forgive me, it's like you're speaking to the devil himself. 
Now, the person, the egotist, he knows the truth about himself. And a lot of them say, I don't see it. Sometimes they repent and they come back. And guess what they say? I did see it, but I was too proud to admit it. So they see it. Egotists desire to be praised constantly by everyone, for everyone to love them, and for everyone to speak well of them. And this is something that our God, our church, and our Christ do not want. Our religion, says St. Porphyrios, does not wish for this kind of upbringing. On the contrary, it wants children to learn the truth from an early age. What do you mean with the truth? The truth about God, the truth about the teachers of the church, yes. But the truth about themselves. The truth of Christ emphasizes that if you praise a person, you make him an egotist. An egotist is mixed up and is led by the devil and the evil spirit. An egotist is a confused person, a deluded person, and a person that's under the control of demons. And so, says the saint, growing up in the spirit of egotism, his first task is to deny God and to be a badly adjusted egotist in society. In other words, badly adjusted is a person who finds it difficult to live in society. Egotists won't have successful marriages. When I have to deal with married couples, the few that I do, and there's friction between them, the main thing is that I notice one of them or both of them won't admit their mistakes. You must tell the truth for a person to learn it. Otherwise, you have him in his ignorance. Don't put children or adults in ignorance unless they've got like, true schizophrenia. A lot of doctors just say, just go along with them. So if a schizophrenic says that he saw an elephant flying in the air, you go, oh, did you? Okay, just go, just leave them. Because if you go against them, they go crazy. That's a schizophrenic. They're mentally ill. That's different to a person that hasn't been diagnosed with that and they've got some delusions. You've got to explain to them that what they're saying is wrong. When you tell someone the truth, he finds his bearings. He takes care. He listens to other people and he restrains himself. So when a person is told the truth, he knows how to live his life, his direction he's going, because he's got the truth. And so to a child also, you must tell the truth and scold it so that it knows that what it is doing is not good. The saint is saying to scold it. What does scold mean? To tell them, to reprimand them. No, my child, that's not correct. Now, not when they're two, three years old, they're playing with dolls or they're doing something. and they believe, That's fantasy. That's, that, they're young. But as they grow up, especially if they start hitting seven, which is usually the age that they start confessing, that means they've got a conscience. Because remember, children can't differentiate between fantasy and that. They start to understand the difference between fantasy and reality around seven. That's why that's when you start confession. Now, some kids might be more developed and they might do it at five or six. Some children are a bit slower, so they might be eight, nine. Every child's different. That's why if a child is seven, 
but it's still not mature and, and doesn't understand things, I don't let them go to confession because it mucks them up. They don't, they don't know what's going on. I just wait a bit for them to get a bit mature. But in the Russian church, they insist on it. But anyway, that's my opinion. So, uh, so you must tell the child, the saint says, not me, St. Porphyrios, scold the child, reprimand the child. That's not correct what you're doing. That's not the truth what you're saying. What does Solomon say in the Old Testament? He that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastises him diligently. That's a quote from Proverbs chapter 13, line 24. I don't mean, of course, for you to beat the child with a stick. Then we overstep the bounds and produce opposite results. As I said, St. Paul didn't believe at all in physical punishment. St. Paisius did a little bit when they were very young. But spare the rod, etc., means you've got to tell the child, reprimand the child. If you do reprimand the children, he says, Solomon says, that means you love your child. But if you don't, then you hate your child. You're not correcting that child. By praising our children from an early age, we lead them to egotism. And you can trick an egotist, provided you tell him how good he is and inflate his ego. Egotists, if you praise them, you can get what you want from them because they love the praise. And so he tells you, the egotist, when someone praises them, this person who praises me is good. Then the saint continues, these things are not right because such a person grows up with egotism, confusions arise within him, he suffers and he doesn't know what he's doing. See what I said before? That when you praise they become egotists and therefore they suffer and they don't know what they're doing. The cause of psychological instability and disorder is egotism. This is something that psychiatrists themselves, if they explore the matter, will discover, namely, that the egotist is sick. In other words, a lot of psychological disorders today, says the saint, is not, as the psychiatrists say, maybe some little trauma, which is true, there might be some of those things, but he says it's because they're egotists. Pride. And the psychiatrists don't mention that. Unless it's really bad. So the cause of psychological instability and disorder, mental disorder, is egotism. We should never praise and flatter people, but rather lead them to humility and love of God. Nor should we seek to be loved by flattering others. Let us learn to love and not seek to be loved. So sometimes we flatter people so that they can love us back. They shouldn't do that. That's like manipulation. We praise them so that we can get some things for us. Let us love everyone and make sacrifices as great as we are able for all our brothers and sisters in Christ without expecting praise and love from them in return. They will do for us whatever God inspires them to do. 
So you do something good for someone, you don't do it to get something in return. If they do something good in return to you, God, God has allowed. That's okay. But you don't do it so that you can get something out of them. Like there was a, a woman that I knew, she used to help people, but she did that so that she could get benefits from them, like a lift or money or something like that. That's manipulation. If they are Christians, they will give glory to God that we help them or spoke a good word to them. This is also the way you should guide the children at school. This is the truth. Otherwise, they grow up maladjusted. And maladjusted means disturbed, abnormal, messed up, unstable. In other words, if you praise them, that's what's going to happen. They don't know what they are doing and where they are going. And we are the cause of it on account of the way we have brought them up. We have not led them to truth, to humility and to the love of God. We have turned them into egotists and look at the results. Harsh words, but truthful words. There are also, however, children who come from humble parents and whose parents spoke to them from an early age about God and about holy humility by reading those stories like I read earlier on. These children do not create problems to their fellow men. In other words, humble children do not create problems for their fellow people there. They do not get angry when you point out their error. Oh, if that could only, if that could be true. I love that. They do not get angry when you point out their error, but try to correct it, and they pray that God may help them not to become egotists. Parents say, oh, I can't tell my child anything. Well, you did it. You did it. That's how you taught them. If you've got a child or an older child which doesn't like to be told their fault, um, I have to say, you've got a disaster on your hands. That's really, really bad. When I went to the Holy Mountain, says the saint, I lived with exceedingly saintly elders. They never said to me, well done. They always counselled me how to love God and how to be always humble. So when St. Porphyrius as a young person went to Mount Athos, he had some elders there and they never praised him. Their advice was love God and be humble and pray to God to strengthen and to pray to God to strengthen my soul and to love him greatly. I didn't know what well done was, nor did I ever desire it, says the saint. On the contrary, I was distressed if my elders didn't scold me. He would get upset if the elders didn't tell him his faults. Well, we get upset if we are told our faults. But the saints get upset when they're not told their faults. I said to myself, heavens above, I haven't found myself good elders. I wanted them to correct me, to censure me, to point out my faults and behave strictly towards me. If a Christian were to hear what I'm saying now, what would he say? He would be taken aback and rejected. In other words, he would be surprised or troubled or upset and reject it, to say, oh, how can you want to be told off? How can you want to be told your faults? But nevertheless, that is what is right, humble and sincere, the saint says. Now, I haven't got it. 
I'm struggling to have that. We all get bothered when we're told our faults, etc. That's, that's what we're struggling for. And hopefully we improve as time goes on. To listen to other people, to be, to be able to be told your fault without blowing up like a volcano. Or even if you don't blow up, some people don't blow up, but they inside them they have all this uh, disturbance. <clears throat> That's our aim. To learn humility, and the best way to learn humility is when we're told our faults. Neither did my parents, says the saint, say to me, well done. He wasn't praised either. For that reason, whatever I did, I did selflessly. In other words, he did it not expecting anything in return. Whatever he did for others, he didn't do it to expect something in return. Now that I hear people singing my praises, I feel bad, very bad. There's something that kicks in protest inside of me when other people say to me, well done. <laughs> it's interesting. So when we are told our faults, we kick inside of us, while the saint, St. Porphyrios, would kick if someone praised him, didn't like it. And why don't I want to be applauded now, says the saint. Why? Because I know that praise makes a person empty and expels the grace of God. The grace of God comes only with holy humility. An egotist cannot have, in other words, I'm, I'm saying this, an egotist cannot have the grace of God, which explains why I found it difficult. I'm not talking about someone who um, their wife told them something and then they exploded and then later on they go and say, forgive me, you're right. Or so. That's struggle, that's okay. That's struggling. But when you've got people who will never go back to say, you're right. I've seen people like that. And this is the truth. Here it says here, the grace of God comes only with holy humility. In other words, God will not give his grace to an egotist. Why? Because if God gave his grace to an egotist, the egotist would say to himself, I didn't ask forgiveness, but still God loves me and he's still giving me grace. No, what God does with the egotists is he leaves them to be tortured and they are tortured human beings. Now, how do I know that? Well, when I don't admit my fault, I'm tortured. If I admit my fault, I'm calm. Same as you. When you don't admit your fault, you feel tortured. Your face becomes all distorted. A lot of times our face becomes black, dark. No one wants us. Get thoughts, continual thoughts. I had a, a tradesman come to the monastery because doing some renovations and the tradesman said that his son, Orthodox, married a woman and uh, she's really proud. Can't admit her mistakes. Really, really proud. And they live next door to each other. So the father lives here and the son with his wife lives there. And what happened was, before the son got married, he used to live with his father, and they had a little dog, Booby. That's the name of the dog, Booby. So they lived there, the tradesman, his son, the tradesman's mother, the grandmother in other words, 
and little Booby. So they were there happily together. And then the boy got married to the egotist and they bought a house next door. But Booby stayed with the father and the grandmother. So there we have it. Now, you ready for it? So Booby would often go over next door because he was close to the son, because he brought him up. So she dug the little hole under the fence, and then Booby would go over there and go and stay with the, the man who took care of him when he was young. Suddenly, the egotist came home. This is what the person told me. I, I just couldn't get over it. He goes, as soon as Booby heard the egotist drive up in her car, Whoop, straight under the fence. So even Booby couldn't stand her. And that's the truth. No one likes an egotist. They're disgusting when they're in that spirit. Disgusting their spirit. We're disgusting. When we do it, we are disgusting. So even the dogs know that egotists are not very nice people. Another example was, so there's a family, a few children... The husband, the wife, so the wife and the husband had some type of argument. The husband was in the wrong and he couldn't admit his mistake. It was actually terrible. And what happened? The wife couldn't stand to be near him. The children couldn't stand to be near him. Everyone was against him. And he couldn't understand it's your egotism. A humble man says St. Porfirios, a humble man is a perfect man. Is that not a fine thing? Is that not true, says the saint? If you tell this to anybody, they will immediately say, what a piece of nonsense. Some might say different, but what a piece of nonsense. If you don't praise your children, he won't be able to do his schoolwork or anything. People say that. But that happens because that's what we're like. And we have made our children the same. In other words, parents think you've got to praise because they want praise. So they think the children want praise. And that's why. In other words, we have strayed from the truth. Egotism evicted, in other words, expelled man from paradise. It's a great evil. Adam and Eve were simple and humble. That's why they lived in paradise. They didn't have egotism. They did, however, have the primal nature, as we call it in theological language. When we say primal nature, we mean the gifts of grace that God bestowed on man in the beginning when he created him. Namely, life, immortality, consciousness, freedom of will, love, humility, etc. Through flattery, through praise, however, the devil managed to delude them, to trick them. If you eat from the tree, you will become great, said the devil to Eve. What did he use? Praise. They became filled with egotism. The natural state of man, as created by God, however, is humility. Egotism, on the contrary, is something unnatural, an illness, and contrary to nature. When we, with our praises, create this super ego in the child, we inflate its egotism, the child's egotism, and we do the child great harm. 
Now, superego is a psychological term which the saint is using here. I tried to work it out. I, sorry, I couldn't do it. It's, I'm not. I uh, tried to read it. I didn't have time. So we'll just read the rest of it. It's like when I did the talk on the toll houses, there was something about Gnostics and I couldn't understand it. So I just read it. And, and so, so I'm not into these super ego things, but I'll read what the saints say. I think we'll understand it. He says, we make the child more susceptible to demonic influence. When you praise a child, you open that child up to demonic influence, which is what the elder said in the beginning in the Evergati Nos, where he says, he who praises a monk, it's like he's throwing the devil in his face. And yet, St. Porfirios is not talking to monks, he's talking to parents. And he's saying, when you praise your child, you open the child up to demonic influence. And so, as we bring the child up, we steadily distance it from the values of life. Don't you believe that this is the reason why children go astray and people rebel? It is the egotism that the parents have implanted in them from an early age. I think that's a super ego business. It's something to do with the early age and what the parents have taught the child. Right. So uh, the devil is the great egotist, the great Lucifer. In other words, we live with Lucifer inside of us with the devil when we are egotists. We don't live with humility. Humility is from God. It is something essential for the human soul. It is something organic, something natural. If it's missing, it is as if the heart were missing from the human organism. Can a, can a body live without a heart? No. The soul cannot live without humility. In other words, the heart gives life to the body and humility gives life to the soul. With egotism, a person is given over to the part of the evil spirit. That is, he develops with the evil spirit and not with the good spirit. So as you are praising the child, the child grows up together with the demonic spirit which is influencing the child. And the older it becomes, the more this spirit attaches to the child. It's very, very serious. That is what the devil has succeeded in achieving. He has turned the earth into a labyrinth. In other words, like a jungle, like a maze. You know, like a jungle, you can't find your way out. He goes, that's how the world has become. So that we are unable to come to an understanding with one another. What has happened to us without our realising it? Do you see how we have been led astray? We have turned our world and our age into one large psychiatric hospital. And we don't understand what's gone wrong. We all ask, what's become of us? Where are we going? Why are their children taken off? Why have they left their homes? Why are they giving up on life? Why have they given up on their studies? And the answer? Because they were praised unnaturally when they were young and they became egotists. Near finish. Why is all this happening, says St. Porphyrios? The devil has succeeded in concealing himself, which is what he does. He doesn't show himself. The devil has succeeded in concealing himself and in making people use other names. Doctors and psychologists often say when someone is tormented, oh, this person has a neurosis or 
he's suffering from anxiety. They are the new names. Instead of saying the person's got demonic influence because he's an egotist, the doctors say, oh, he's got a neurosis, he's got a problem, he's got anxiety or she's got anxiety. They don't accept, listen to this, what the saints say, the doctors and the psychologists, they don't accept that the devil is inciting and arousing egotism in the person, inciting like provoking, urging, influencing, stimulating the person in a demonic way. But yet the devil exists and is the spirit of evil. If we say he doesn't exist, it's as if we are rejecting the gospel that speaks of him. Because in the Bible it says the devil exists. And people say, oh no, it doesn't, there's a, no, 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 no. You know, modern science says no and all that type of stuff. It's just mental illness. No, he's saying a lot of it's demonic. There are real mental illnesses too, by the way, so don't, you know. He is our enemy, our adversary in life, the opposite of Christ, which is why he's called the Antichrist. Christ came to earth to release us from the devil and to grant us salvation. The conclusion is that we need to teach our children to live humbly and simply and not continually to seek praise and applause. We need to teach them that there is humility and that this is the healthy state of life. One more page and we're finished. I'm going a bit quick, but I think because of the background that I did, I think it's understandable, I would say. When people ring me up or come or whatever and they've got mental problems, a lot of times the first thing I do is to look is the mental problem from trauma from when they were young? Is the mental problem genetic? Is the mental problem spiritual? And when I say spiritual, does it come from egotism? Is it from the passions? Is it demonic? So I look at the person and say, okay, what is the reason? And I tell you, a lot of the times, it's true what he's, what he's saying, and I observe that. It's egotism. All they have to do is humble themselves, have some obedience, and they'll become better a lot of times. That's why we've got mentally ill people that are humble, and we've got mentally ill people that are demonic. The mentally ill person that's humble has a problem, like trauma or some biological problem, lack of iron, it could be sugars, it could be a lot of things, medication. It's not their fault. It's not coming from their will, from their passion. Then we have another person who's mentally ill and they're horrible. And that's because their mental illness is coming from pride and the passions. That's the difference. I've seen humble mentally ill people. By the way, I've got mental problems as well. All of us have mental problems. Everyone's got mental problems. When you're sick spiritually, you don't become just sick in soul, you become sick in mind. So we all have mental issues. The point is, some of us were born with them, some of it's beyond us. So, for example, someone could be born with a mental condition that makes him get upset but it's not really from ego but it's something wrong with the person and that person straight away after that says sorry forgive me see it can make them even more humble 
The last page. The mindset of our contemporary society does harm to children. Like I said earlier on, the way that society teaches people does harm to children in the way of education and psychology. It is based on another psychology and another theory of education that is addressed to the children of atheists. This frame of mind leads to complete disregard for the consequences of our actions. That's why people go to psychiatrists. I sent one person once because I couldn't help them because there's something wrong there. And a lot of it was the ego. Sometimes I say to people, go to psychiatrists, you know why? To humble them. At least they'll say, for me to be going to psychiatrists, there must be something wrong with me. And sometimes that wakes them up. Anyway, sometimes you, you send them because there might be something wrong with their brain biologically. Anyway, so this person went to the psychologist and she said to her, my friends, and she was crying, <laughs> my friends said that I'm selfish, that I'm a selfish person. And the psychologist said, well, they're not your real friends. Go find new friends. No examination, no nothing, no consequences. They're not your real friends. But in an orthodox perspective, they are your real friends because they're telling you what you've got is selfish. They're your real friends. And then this person started thinking, oh, she's right, I'm going to find new friends. And then she went through a whole period of not going to church. Interesting. Interesting, isn't it? She didn't accept the fault. And what did St. Porfirio say? They lose grace. So she stopped going to church for a while. That's a good sign, isn't it? No, it means something's wrong. And then she returned to her old friends and she said, yes, you're right, I am selfish and I am a manipulator. I do things to get things out of people. And after that, she became a nice person again. See, very simple. No medication, no nothing. It's called sorry. See, cheap as well. Everyone say it, sorry, very cheap. You don't need Xanax, you don't need all these medications, any depressants. Like the woman I told you that had a fight with her husband and she went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, you've got clinical depression. You've got to go on medication. You've got clinical depression. And she was all crying and upset. No history, how long you've been like this, what's going on, nothing. You need to go on medication. Anyway, she went home and she said to herself, am I going to go on pills now and look like a zombie? And she said, sorry, that was it. And the clinical depression left. And yet, I'm not a doctor. And I told her, all you got to do is go say sorry and you'll get better. And she went home and she said sorry and she got better. So this Goanna, this doctor, was going to put on antidepressants. Like when I went to the doctor after I had the stroke that I had, and I, went, and I said, I'm feeling very, something's wrong. He goes, oh, it's because you're upset over the, the stroke, so you've got to take antidepressants. And I said, wow, what is that? I go, but I don't feel sad. I don't feel 
that I'm upset about it. I accept it. That's it. God permitted it. Because I couldn't speak properly. I couldn't walk. I couldn't serve. He goes, no, it's because you're upset. Anyway, he gave me the prescription. I screwed it up. And then a couple of days later, I got better. I think it was a side effect of one of the medications, taking blood pressure tablets, blood thinners. What else was I taking? Well, all those things. And something I think was affecting me, and it's like it can affect your mood. He didn't examine that. He didn't say anything. So I said, as I've said before, if I took that medication and two days later I felt better, which wasn't from the medication because that, those antidepressants take at least three weeks. Is that right? Three weeks? Two weeks to kick in. But I would have thought, it's true. I'm, I'm good again. So it must be the antidepressants. It wasn't that. So it was good I didn't take it because it proved it wasn't that. Last paragraph. Young people nowadays say, you need to understand us. And that's what they say. You don't understand me. You've got to come down to my level. And then the saint says, but we mustn't go to them. On the contrary, we need to pray for them, to say what's right, to live by what is right, ourselves as parents, and proclaim what is right, and not follow and agree to their way of thinking. Not to go down to their level. So, for example, your son says, I'm gay, for example. And what do parents do? They go down and go, okay, can you bring your boyfriend over? We'll have dinner. That's true. That's what they do because they don't want to go against the child. Or the girl comes and says one day, I want to be a boy. So you've got to go along. So... The boy's name was, say, Jamie, but now he wants to be called Jasmine. The mother goes along, and Jasmine said this, and Jasmine this, and Jasmine that. And we're going along. But he's saying, don't go with them. Say the truth. Live the life. Pray to God. You do the right thing. He says, I'll read that again. On the contrary, we need to pray for them, to say what is right, to live by what is right and proclaim what is right and not follow and agree to their way of thinking. We mustn't compromise the magnificence of our faith. We cannot, in order to help them, adopt their frame of mind. We need to remain the people that we are and proclaim the truth and the light. He doesn't do that harshly. So your son says, oh, I'm gay with that. You say, I don't agree with that. That's not proper. That's not what the church teaches. That's not what God wants. You don't have to rip him apart. You just say it calmly. And then if he says, no, 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 whatever, obviously the child's confused, you pray for them secretly. You ask for prayers, ring up monasteries, do commemorations, whatever. But you don't go down to them. Say you taught your daughter not to wear makeup from young. All of a sudden she's 15, 16, and she wants to wear makeup. What are you going to do? Throw the makeup away. You can't, you can't. They're too old now. And you say, that's not proper. You don't sit there and put the makeup on for them. And so, oh, that's a really nice shade. It suits your pale face. It's really nice. You don't do that. You keep to your guns, in other words. You don't wear makeup. If you wear makeup, you can't do it, can you? But if you don't wear makeup, you say that and you say it's not right. Your daughter leaves and lives with someone. 
They moved in. They're having sex. They got their unit or their house, whatever. And you say, my child, it's not right. It's not correct. I still love you. But that is not right, what you're doing. You don't go over and you don't say to your friends, oh, I'm going over to my daughter's house tonight. I'm having dinner with her boyfriend. And we're going to watch a movie. You're going to give word. You're going to give word. And don't believe this rubbish that they say, oh, if you go against the child, they'll commit suicide. Like these transgender things. Oh, we have to ch let them change their sex because they're so unhappy and they're going to commit suicide. Like when the gays started coming out, they go, oh, the children that are gay are being bullied, etc., 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 and they're committing suicide. Anyway, they won a lot of rights now. In San Francisco, which is the gay capital, oh, it's, it's an in thing if you're gay. It doesn't matter. No one goes against you, no, especially in San Francisco. Completely progressive people. But they're still committing suicide. Why are they committing suicide? They've got everything. Because deep down their soul, they know that what they're doing is wrong. Something's telling them that it's unnatural to have sexual contact with the same sex. Deep down, they know it. So you don't put them down. You just say, what you're doing is wrong. But the main thing is to pray, which is the next talk. We mustn't compromise the magnificence of our faith. We cannot, in order to help them adopt their own frame of mind. We need to remain the people that we are and proclaim the truth and the light. The children will learn from the Holy Fathers. The teaching of the Fathers will instruct our children about confession, about the passions, about evils, and about how the saints conquered their evil selves. And we will pray that God will enter into our children. Now, that part is talking about young children. If they're older, it's you didn't do that, a lot of it's too late. You've got to do it the other way, which is don't compromise, tell them what they're doing is wrong, stick to your guns, don't have to be harsh, etc. But if you've got little children in the house, other children, and then your older child decides that they want to bring their boyfriend, girlfriend, same sex, whatever, into the house with the little children, what do you do then? Do you let them do it? But you've got other children there. You've got to think about it. So what do you do? If you want to live that life, you can't stay here. I want you to stay here. I want you to be with us. We love you, etc., etc. But you can't do that because it's not proper and you're influencing your younger siblings. You can't do that. But parents, because the devil speaks to them and says, if you do that, you'll lose them. You lose them. They won't talk to you anymore. They don't talk to you anymore when you're harsh. When you say, oh, you're disgusting, that's really bad. You just say it in a loving way what the fathers teach, what the church teaches, what God teaches, and that's it. Don't fight with them, etc. And if they're older, they want to lead that life, goodbye. It's up to them. And say, the house will be open, we're here, we'll help you, but we're not going to allow you to live that life, we don't agree with it. And don't worry, when God sees what you're doing, he will help. 
But when you're scared and you're using worldly techniques that the world says, you go along with them. If they're taking drugs, you just say, oh, you know, um, oh, be careful, be careful with this. If they're having sex, make sure you're having safe sex so you don't get AIDS or something like that. It's tragic because a lot of the children weren't brought up properly. So the next talks that are coming on, with God's help, are going to be all about what do you do with situations where the child has grown up and you've lost them, it's out of control. It could be 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. They're gone. And the reason why they're gone, obviously, is because you praised them a lot, they weren't taught the truth, they went to school, there's no relationship with the parents, etc. There's a whole thing there. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God have mercy on us and save us. Amen.